Okay, this is a microphone test for Danny. Georgie, go ahead and talk at the same time. How are you doing? How's DC? I'm fine. Okay. I'm fine. And Everything's fine. Everything's fine. So, <laughs> same way you hear on TV. <laughs> so we're talking at the same time. This is my volume. This is Georgie's volume. Go ahead and talk again, Georgie. Yep. Mine is slightly above middle, so hopefully I don't sound like a crackhead. And then bring but, uh, bring that microphone just slightly closer, if if at all possible. A little closer. Yeah. Is it better? Okay, everybody. Okay. How is my volume? How is Georgie's volume? Please let us know in the chat. Thank you so much. We're muted. Okay, we are live. Georgie Dinkov, how are you, sir? Hey, fine. In the middle of the riots, everything's fine here. Uh, holding up, you know, hanging in there. Yeah, you know, not to go too down a rabbit hole, but how are things in D.C.? I was telling you before we started here that uh, I, I keep forgetting that D.C. is like the epicenter of everything. Um, my office, I mean, where we're where I'm recording this right now, actually not recording, but when we're doing this the live broadcast, it's a block from the White House. Um, so there are military vehicles everywhere. There's police everywhere. Um, pretty much like anything within f uh, four to five block radius from the White House has been shut off. You can't have vehicles. I mean, people are al allowed to walk, but around me on the street when I was walking uh, towards the office, there were like, you know, the ratio of cops plus military to pedestrians was like 10 to 1. <laughs> So th things are peaceful, but um, you know you can you can sense the tension. Last week was pretty bad. I mean, there was you you could tell because helicopters are flying throughout the night to the point where you can't even sleep. Uh, you can see windows being broken. Um, that sound and um, but now seems to be more or less uh, settled down. I mean, there's still protests, but they're sitting in front of the White House and they don't seem to be doing much. Just like it's kind of like a sit-in, more of a sit-in than real protest. Uh, than an actual demonstration where people move around and break things and, you know, um, uh, you know, clash with the police. And have you seen a, like a de-escalation of the coronavirus stuff since the rise of the protests? Actually, it's almost forgotten. I mean, uh, you know, there are people wearing masks. They're part of the protest. But like, honestly, everybody's mind is now on this. And actually, little by little, I'm kind of hearing conversations saying like, oh, my God, like so we <laughs> Suddenly stop caring about the virus. Everybody went about their way. They're not really following any of the rules. And the world is not falling apart. It's not ending. So what what was that all about? I mean, kind of starting to hear these conversations like, what was that all about? Yeah, to, to be fair, like nobody, neither you nor I nor, nor anybody I know would have predicted this would have happened. But it's like a... 
really shocking that you see the the some of the newscasts that say uh, some of the health experts say that it's you should still stay at home unless you're protesting. It's just like, what? What <laughs> doesn't make any sense? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, at least the people that I'm seeing on the street, the majority of them are not wearing masks. Um, and basically, I don't I mean, there's definitely no no maintenance of the of the social distancing. I mean, these crowds cluster together in, in order to oppose, if nothing else, to oppose the police. When the police forms a line and tries to push back, these protesters are don't stand a chance if they're standing six feet apart. Mm. So they cluster together and they push back. Right. Um, even those people, most of them, from what I see, are not wearing masks. Um, so at this point, I think little by little, I think people right now are too busy with the other stuff to actually start saying, this was ridiculous. How could we fall for this for this completely ridiculous narrative? They're just Their mind is on something else right now. But when that thing comes down, if it does, I, I think you're going to start seeing some, some more serious, um, you know, um, um, I don't know, like not political movements, but like there, there will probably be some kind of a movement that will say, hold on, what did just happen? And why, why did we, you know, fall for this? Um, you know, you know, just, just like they're trying to hold the police responsible. I think they may try to do something about that virus as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which kind of explains why probably the, the, the news media is now not saying anything about the virus because they don't want to bring it up in this situation. They're just hoping everybody will forget and, and, and just move on. Well, I did read uh, uh, two days ago that they were talking about it uh, like outbreaks increasing. And so, again, I wonder if we'll be like subjugated to uh, it coming back or something, you know, like I think we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, but that'd be horrifying. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, like if you look at the the, the projections and, and the waves that they do for the flu, mm-hmm. uh, this, this is done every year. I mean, there, there's no there's no defined flu season. It's just it's just a specific portion of the year when people are more susceptible and you get to see more cases and more people end up in hospital, mostly because of their low vitamin D and lack of light during the winter. Right. This is there's no mystery. Well, to us, I mean, like, and and actually, you you do see some studies that are saying, hey, is the flu simply like a vitamin D deficiency annual syndrome or something like that? This these questions are already being being asked. But now, if you look at the projections that they have for the coronavirus, they're not that different from the projections that are being done from the flu. Mm-hmm. Um, and many experts are now saying, the, oh, you know what? So, oops, sorry, the original models were wrong. Mm-hmm. Guess what? You should be celebrating because we were wrong. Well, um, and so far it flies, but I, let's see for how long. Good stuff. We could probably talk about this all day. Um, guys, go ahead and give this episode a like, uh, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment, and I will announce the winner of We've Been Not Announcing Regular Winners, which is my fault. Um, but uh, DBO514 for his effortless, or not effortless, monumental effort in, in just being useful in the chat, uh, the comment section, you have won a bottle of Tokovit, so I appreciate that. And then we'll pick another winner next time you and I do a live stream. And so, again, like this episode, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment. And then uh, something that should be noted, you know, I know we talk about this fairly frequently, but like this is totally grassroots uh, user supported show. You know, I make money on my coaching. You make money because you have a real job and you do the supplements, but nothing's being exchanged between us. 
And then also like the I've I've whined about this many times, but like YouTube is clearly not favoring our content. For example, if you type in Ray Pete, the the interviews with him do not show up when you type in Ray Pete into YouTube. And again, I know that's our fault. We're talking about things that YouTube does not like. Uh, But again, if you value this content, if you comment or you like the episode or you subscribe to the channel, that's helpful uh, for us, basically, if you care. Um, also, uh, effort has been put into the audio quality. You know, it's like devastating to me to find out that an episode has bad audio quality after the fact, especially those uh, Ray episodes. And I was telling Georgie that before we jumped on here. Another bit of news is I'm working on getting all the episodes on a podcast aggregator. I resisted it for a long time because, again, the audio quality was it was pretty bad for some of the episodes. And so I didn't think somebody would want to listen to uh, a bad sounding uh, live stream audio for two hours, but appar- apparently a lot of people do. So I will work on that. And then the last thing is, uh, I, I can't speak for you, Georgie, but I think we have like a prerogative to move towards, uh, whatever we believe is true, you know? And I think you, I, you and I are both similar in that if that is shocking to some people or upsetting to some people, that's, that's not necessarily going to stop us from chatting about it. And so, uh, especially with those Ray ones, you know, I, I think we we get to topics that some people are get like shocked or upset by. But uh, for what it's worth, you know, I think it's all in an effort to find some kind of truth or uncover bits of reality. And I I don't really I've never talked to you and thought that you were caged by cultural uh, norms. Ray called it the religious cultural cage. You know, I think you're a very free thinking person. And it used to be. But I, I had my come to Jesus. <laughs> I know it sounds bad, but like it's kind of like Jesus walking away and then saying, "You're on your own, kid." And yeah, that's pretty much when my journey started. I would say. But but yeah, this a long-winded set way of saying you know navigating to truth wherever that will take us. You know, and, and not being. By the way, I'm not an atheist because I do get these these questions. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to stress that I. I am actually a pious in a sense, but just as Ray said, um, I found out that you know the many religious doctrines are actually have been created most likely with a very nefarious purpose in mind, namely to control and you know basically keep keep people believing whatever is good for a small cluster of very twisted minds. Um, you know there is a God, but that God is right in front of us. There's no need. I think in one of the interviews you asked him like. So if there is a God, he's right, right in front of us. It's the world. It's this reality, this constant process of creation. That would be God. And Ray said, yeah, you know, if you have to jump to some remote place where they put God, you know, namely the religious authorities, then you're not there, right? So it's so it's not really something that's real. Um, and, you know, if you want to believe in things, you might as well believe in something that's real. And to him, it was about process, process theology, the, pro- the constant process of creation, which, by the way, many 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 scientists have uh, have thought about this idea. David Baum, the physicist, is probably the one who is the most uh, famous for saying that uh, life is a constant process of creation and should be lived um, as if it was like a like a uh, you know a, a, a seance of art, as if you're painting something you know c- continuously. You're participating in the constant creation of the world. So. No need to put your faith in something that's completely remote, out there, untouchable, invisible, invisible, and incomprehensible. 
It's right in front of you. <laughs> Somebody says Danny is calling Georgie a, a barbarian. So that's not that was it. That wasn't my point. I was just saying the Bulgarian barbarian. I, I, I was just saying we we like if, if uh, t- some people were shocked that we didn't subscribe to the the what was happening via, like via the view of CNN. And so, again, I think that might be shocking to some people. So I'm just saying we're going to navigate to areas that might make people uncomfortable. And I'm just saying we're doing that because you and I, I I suspect that's the only way we can do it like that. I just share what I'm interested in automatically. It's not something I even think about, you know. And I also I've learned to grow deeply suspicious whenever somebody is immediately opposed to something just because it's novel. Yeah, yeah. And actually, that that many times, more often than not, is due to metabolic deficiency because that's actually like people become hostile to change with age universally. That's not a coincidence, mostly because they, in order to handle change, to incorporate it, you need the energy, right? Uh, but sometimes it's, it, 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 um, this, this hostility takes in the form of projection to other people as well. It's like it's okay to not like change in your own life. I mean, it's not okay, but like it's understandable, right? It's your life. You decide what you do with it. But then you start getting annoyed when other people are continuously unearthing these annoyingly new things. And that's not okay with me. You know, I, I, to me, that's an essential part of life. And for as long as I have the energy, I'll continue to do it. Yeah, I think we've said that before. But when somebody says, no, 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 do, do not do that, it almost makes me want to talk about it more, you know? Yeah. yeah. Especially if there's evidence for it. I mean, so sometimes it's the it's simply the contrarianism, but sometimes it's, it's like, look, there's all this evidence and just dismissing it altogether because it's new or crazy. That's the other thing, right? Um, I'm not going to do that. You know, I, I like reading these things that are not part of the norm. You cannot grow if you just keep staying in your comfort zone. Who was that? Wasn't that, wasn't it John Lennon who said that life, life starts where your comfort zone ends or something like that? I've heard that before. I don't know if it was John Lennon. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Uh, before we get too far, uh, let me make sure my scene switchers are working. Okay. Follow Georgie on Twitter, twitter.com slash hate it. Uh, to like this episode, uh, go to idealabzc.com. That's Georgie Supplements Company, Boutique Supplements. Follow me on t.me slash Danny Roddy for my um, Telegram, Twitter, Danny Roddy. And I do coaching at dannyroddy.com slash resources. Okay. We'll jump into, did you have a preference for the first article that we talk about? Um, let's see. Um, I guess the first one will be at this point, people know that I'm partial to DHT. Uh, but I, I think I thought it was a pretty good um, associate, a pretty good article, even though it's epidemiological. It basically showed that the higher, once you get diagnosed with prostate cancer, the higher your DHT levels, the lower the risk of you dying. So it's like, so it's, I mean, keep in mind, the vast majority of therapists for prostate cancer currently are aimed at obliterating your DHT levels. Mm. And now they've extended this to any androgen, right? But there's still DHT is still the, the, the target. And this article just goes into the face of it. And if you look at the popular press that's covering this 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 release, they reached out to some uh, known oncologist and urologist, and the, the reaction was like, no, nah, it's just statistical fluke. I, I cannot comment <laughs> on that. The whole way. <laughs> which, and then, of course, uh, a few of them call it controversial, which to me is a signal that this is probably on the right path. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not in, you know, if not 100% right, it, just as Ray said, it's, there is no evidence that, that directly implicates DHT as a cause of prostate cancer. It is all based, it's all a house of cards well, and it's uh, collapsing. For, from what you've read, it, do they even propose a mechanism of how DHT causes prostate cancer? 
Yeah, I, it was. It's the the stupidest, most simplistic thing because androgens are known to increase the size of androgen sensitive organs, such as the penis, the prostate, um, and and uh, what did they say? They they give a oh yeah the seminal the seminal vesicles. And then I said, okay, I don't know. Why don't you guys start talking then about penile cancer? Why am I not seeing articles about penile cancer mm-hmm. being caused by DHT? That is also a very highly androgen, very, very, and um, that's also an organ that's highly sensitive to androgens, just like the prostate, right? Mm-hmm. It is one of the one of the targets of DHT, um, and people with very low DHT, they're known to have micropenis, right? Mm-hmm. Why am I not seeing articles and theories and whatnot saying that penile cancer is caused by DHT? Silence, crickets. Like, it's yeah, <laughs> just if anything, the answer is like you know, stay in your lane. You don't know what how these things are okay, but I, I actually I know a person with penile cancer, mm-hmm. um, and, and steroids were never ever discussed, never brought up. Um, speaking of, of steroids, he has a gyno gynecomastia. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, hasn't I mean think about it. Like so, you have penile cancer, and basically they, they cut it out, right? Um, and then basically like your gyno exacerbated because of all of these therapies you were on, and now this thing came back. Like, hasn't the doctor made, and you had the gyno even before, hasn't the doctor made any connection between these two? No, the doctor says, you know, one thing's going to through the other, you know, it's just, just local and, you know, that's how it is. So anyways, um, but the one person that I know, and I've, I'm saying this, it's not a coincidence because I have, I have looked into this. There is a very strong link epidemiological already established between estrogen, prolactin and penile cancer. Um, so yeah, these are the true growth hormones for cancers in those organs, those areas, not DHT. DHT is a heavily differentiating hormone. Remember the discussion about the snails? It it actually helps you restore your proper shape, Mm -hmm. not revert back to something more primitive that the only thing is capable of is division and growth. Yeah, in the uh, Constance R. Martin Endocrine Physiology, I think 1985, it's a book that Ray mentioned, but she, I think it's a she, she says that uh, estrogen are among the, or is among the best known growth hormone. And so yeah. it's, yeah, it's that we've talked about it the, maybe the first episode, but everything being shifting a person towards that uh, reduced state of, of growth or towards that oxidative state of uh, differentiation and in in that characterized by the NAD and NADH ratio. Yep. And, and they, uh, there was a post, which we may have discussed maybe a few months ago, it is on the blog, it showed that finasteride can actually cause hypothyroidism by lowering DHT, even in the presence of normal levels of thyroid hormone. Mm-hmm. So so DHT, conversely, DHT actually, because they did the opposite, they actually administered DHT to see if these symptoms will be reversed in animal model, and it was. So DHT is a heavily pro-metabolic hormone. Anything that is pro-metabolic is highly unlikely to cause cancer because cancer, by definition, is the reversal of metabolism. I mean, it has very high met- metabolism, but the primitive one. Mm-hmm. So anything that stimulates the highly sophisticated and differentiated oxidative phosphorylation, it's um, evolutionary, quite unlikely to be to be causing any type of cancer. Good stuff. Uh, any preference for the another article? Let's see. Oh, a third of Americans show signs just, of clinical anxiety just, and depression. I was just going to say that one was good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's, not a, it's not a reason to laugh, but the reason I'm laughing is that now the popular press is saying it's not just the millennials. It's not just the Generation Zs. It's not. It's everybody. And this is uh, the, the reason I like this one is because 
it shows signs of clinical anxiety and or depression. Mm -hmm. This means the one third is clinically mentally ill. Mm -hmm. That's and by the way, one third is one third that that, that basically they, they managed to get to. And also these studies, they, they have an implicit bias because um, I know because I'm already publishing studies and I, I've already learned to walk the ropes of politics in publishing studies. Um, this, this study is probably kind of underestimating on purpose what the real toll is. You know, in all likelihood, based on the other studies that I posted, gen Generation Z up to seventy-five percent may be mentally ill. Mm -hmm. So I think the real percentage is actually five fifty percent or north of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, the reason I'm posting is that now, of course, the 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 excuse is that oh, this is because of the virus. No, I don't think the virus will suddenly plunge. 50% of the country into clinical anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. There's got to be more more than that. And, and we've seen signs of that. Uh, they're trying to excuse with the virus just as they're trying to excuse the financial crisis. But uh, a few bloggers have already, you know, not bloggers, but like a few finance experts are already starting to write echoes saying like, no, financial crisis actually started in September of 2019. Remember that repo crisis in New York City when the banks couldn't borrow and there was like a liquidity issue, and then the Fed kept saying, no, everything's under control, everything's under control. Well, the Fed poured more money into the financial system between September 2019 and November 2019 than over three years of the financial crisis of 2008. So the financial crisis was very much underway, and, if, and it probably actually was ending by the time the, the, the virus hit. So same thing here. We've been seeing this evidence over the last at least five years I mean, you and I started doing this podcast when 2015, yeah, right? Yeah, I think. I mean, yeah. I, I remember every once in a while, it w even back then, we would bring this up, and it was st just starting to trickle. And then since then, not only has not stopped, but more and more studies are coming out, and more and more studies are saying it's the youngest that are hit the hardest. Um, and uh, you probably remember, like the this post that what I said, the young have now become the old. And the reason I worry about this is that. Um, just just as they kept saying that, you know, we need to quarantine because the healthcare system cannot handle all of these people showing up simultaneously. Well, guess what? The healthcare system also cannot handle the idea that the young will need as much medical help and access to medical resources as the old. It's a type of an insurance system. It's based on the presumption that the old will be, you know, will be uh, occupying the hospitals and doctors and whatnot, and the young will be mostly healthy, mostly, you know, going about their business and earning money and paying taxes and supporting the old. If now we're in a situation where the health of everybody is pretty much equalized and it's poor, mm -hmm. then I don't know how the health, the healthcare system can cope. Mm -hmm. I mean, on, on the flip side, on the positive side, this may actually spur a great movement for, you know, taking health back, I mean, taking back health and, and, and making sure it's in your own hands, you know? Because if 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 people realize that not everybody can get access to a doctor, and by the way, the doctor can doesn't really seem to help much, there's only one recourse. Well, actually, two. You either get hooked up on opioids, which a lot of people seem to be doing and giving up on life, or you, uh, you know, take health back into your own hands and, um, and you know, decide to trust yourself and, and your judgment and your experiment more than a person out there who has no interest in your, be uh, to be, to, to improve your life. Yeah, no, I know we've talked about this topic a lot, but it, it seems like almost the entire culture is designed to make a person pretty depressed. And so on my yeah. Twitter, I, so, so, you know, given this kind of racial tension of everything, I, it, it, it made me think of this, not specifically related to that, but 
Uh, it's uh, This quote is from a book called The True Believer by Eric Hoffer in 1951. He says, passionate hatred can give meaning and purpose to an empty life. Most people haunted by purposelessness find new content by dedicating themselves to a holy cause, but also, also by nursing a fanatical grievance. A mass movement offers them unlimited opportunities for both. And so I, I resonate with that quote in like different areas of my life of being like obsessed with one topic or whatever in like an unhealthy way, not like a fascination way. And so I think that describes a lot of people, especially in the political realm. You get you get sucked into one side and think the other side is like pure evil or whatever. And I think that uh, kind of characterizes that passionate hatred that uh, Eric Hoffer is talking about. Yeah, I mean, if life becomes meaningless, then you have to vent somewhere, right? And usually you don't vent by, you know, some people will channel it in a positive way, but most will simply find somebody or something to hate. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's, I think it's due to a feeling of powerlessness. Uh, basically, it's, yes, it, it's, it's, yes, a feeling that life is meaningless, but also because you want to, most normal people want to change things when things are not going well, right? And if the system doesn't, provide you with the tools or makes you or consistently imposes learn helplessness in you by saying, oh, I'm going to vote for this person to change things. Slap on the wrist, he'll change nothing. Yeah. Um, or, 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 you know, you start a petition or, you know, it gets, it gets killed in court. Or you basically try to support this local community activist. He, he or she gets killed or, or whatnot. It's just the system is designed in a way so no matter what you do, it makes your choices seem meaningless. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, or at least powerless, right? And at some point, I think people either give up, and I mentioned the opioid e epidemic, and many people, the experts, so quote unquote, are scratching. It's like, why is there such an epidemic of opi opi opioid addiction? Well, usually happens when people give up on life, right? So that's actually the other one extreme. The opposite extreme is when people become enraged. I think that that's what we're seeing because it, it tends to be more visible. You don't get to, you don't see a crowd of opioid addicts massively overdosing, you know, together. In, in front of the White House. They may start to do that. I don't know. They may. But it's much more visible when you see a bunch of people, a, a large crowd forming and starting to become violent, or at least threatened to become violent. But there, there are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any statistics or anything, but it seems like there's been like a religious resurgence. And I can only guess that is because people are identifying the hopelessness and that is an appealing thing to, to, to fill that in, obviously, you know, because that gives yeah. a, a big worldview. Um, uh, Johnny Mojo says the, the system is designed to be de dehumanizing. And so I think that's a, uh, that's a good yeah. word to describe it. Something interesting happened last week. I was walking back from the office again. It was late one night. And then there was this when when things were really getting heated up here. So, so there was this group of, protesters going towards the white house mm -hmm. and basically they were talking about mlk and i and i for whatever reason i was dumb enough to interject and i said like <laughs> they were saying, oh yeah it's black against white black against white and i said and i said don't make that mistake remember what do you know what mlk was killed for like yeah because he was trying to free the black people from the oppression of the white i said nope <laughs> no 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 don't don't make that mistake he basically, like, at that point, the rich whites, yes, they were whites, mostly, uh, they had already realized that you have to give the blacks, uh, you know, social, uh, whatever, uh, civil rights. But you know why? Because they spent the first half of the century preparing for that moment. They saw it coming, and they changed the laws in a way they already had an infrastructure to ensure that civil rights does, don't mean anything. And actually, if you go to the Wikipedia page, even right now, it says MLK... Notice that the fight for civil rights did not improve 
the lot of the black man. So he said something else is the real reason, and that real reason is poverty. That real reason is the system that is designed in a way to keep you down. Mm. So he changed the message, and I think Ray said in one of his interviews, um, as soon as MLK made the issue class yeah. and not race, he was immediately killed. And actually, he uh, and and Wikipedia talks about that and talks about the poor man's campaign where he basically said race is no longer the, the core issue. The core issue is that we have people and we're our brothers and sisters across all races that are basically poor and don't have don't stand a chance in this environment. We want all of these people to unite and demand change. Right. And by change, he meant universal basic income or whatever the equivalent was at the time, access to health care, access to education, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't think he lived like, you know, a month <laughs> after after he actually like put this into practice. Mm -hmm. He was shot very, very soon after that. And what was striking to me is that most of these black young people on the street, they just looked at me as if like I was crazy. You know, <laughs> they, they had never considered that. There was even one guy who I actually suspected was a saboteur. Mm -hmm. He was like, oh, don't listen to him. He's like the crackhead. Uh, no, he, he's a cracker. <laughs> like he doesn't understand our problems. Um, and, and, and they just walked away, right? But it was, it was, I mean, this part of the crowd is already being manipulated to start thinking of this as a racial issue when in reality, of course, there's racism there. But it wasn't it Rockefeller who said that racism is the greatest tool we've had to keep people divided. It's basically you turn them into against each other. Mm -hmm. um, and and that, because it plays on a very basic primitive instinct of fear from people who are different from you, right? But it's really the the the, the only difference that needs to be fought in this world, or at least in the empire, is the haves versus the have-nots. And again, as soon as MLK made that made that the core issue, it was done. I've never heard that quote before, but that I'd be interested in finding the, which one the, the Rockefeller. That was uh, John or David Rockefeller said that the racism. One. Uh, one of the Rockefellers. He basically like they asked him about racism and. Um, and then he said, like, uh, they, they're saying he was joking. Mm -hmm. He said it's one of the greatest tools the rich people ever ever got. Mm -hmm. Because basically, and then um, uh, I think Ray discussed it in one of the, he said the reason is because everybody has an, an inborn fear of people that are significantly different from you, right? And they stoke that fear. And racism is, is one of the most obvious, you know, manifestations of that fear. But the only differences that actually matter on a daily basis is the haves versus the have-nots. Mm -hmm. So if all the people that are have-nots, they need to kind of like tolerate each other's differences, as he said about the various political movements, right? They need to tolerate these differences a little bit and focus on the bigger difference, which is them versus a very small group of people that control pretty much everything. Yeah. And, you know, th this is my opinion, but I feel like that word like racist or racism is starting to lose meaning, you know, because yeah. I, I think when we were talking with Ray, like uh, giving those uh, vaccinations that contain HCG to like the Philippines, Mexico, uh, what was it, Nicaragua um, or the other places. Uh, anyways, like that is like Kenya, uh, yeah, Kenya, like the, those are like these kind of true, really horrific racist acts, you know, but I think in the media and the, in the West, like racism is this like, uh, like, I, I don't, I don't know how to articulate it, but it's just like these slight uh, variations in speaking incorrectly d dictated by whatever the person thinks is wrong, you know, but I, I guess there are, I don't know what degrees of kind of racism, you know, and I, I don't, I don't know. What do you think about it? 
the media only cares about racism when it leads to the white people and the people of color in this country fighting. Mm-hmm. So anything that anything that leads to that, media will pick it up and and run with it. Mm-hmm. But if it's about systemic extermination of people somewhere else, like in another country or another part of the world, um, then it's not it's not racism. It's either politics or I don't know, such strategic planning. Yeah. You know, if you particularly cynical about it. I mean, but you know. So only racism when it counts, and basically by by counting, I mean if it serves the purpose of the ruling class, which is we fight over crumbs all the time, and basically like we demand change about you know in terms of racism, and they may even give you those changes, but it will not change the basic reality, which is you'll go right back to working a job that's meaningless by design, and you'll go right back to like uh, going to a school that's dehumanizing you and and making you dumb by design and you go right back to eating the food that's making you sick and going to the doctor who is prolonging and and enhancing that that sickness it, so that's these things will not change by demanding racial rights yeah the one other thing i want to add is sometimes the people i know that talk about uh, race the most i don't think they realize how bad I, i've said this before i don't think they realize how bad their quality of life is like they they think they're looking at a specific race or something and think of how bad they have it but they don't understand how bad their life is specifically of what you just said they're drinking their toxic water their toxic food breathing their toxic air but they think they're they think they're like superior in some way, but they they don't understand how shitty their quality. Right, of life just is. because police is not bursting, you know, busting your door in the middle of the night and shooting. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's probably it's less worse than than having it ha- that happen. But guess what? You're getting killed slowly and by design. Yeah, by design. Yeah. Uh, if anything, it's actually I, I I suspect it's the black people who may have on some level a healthier lifestyle because they have a stronger sense of community because they feel like they're always under attack. And they have a strong sense of community. They go to church. And I'm not talking about the religious part of church, but like they cling together mm-hmm. and they they care about each other. Um, you know, uh, and there's a bigger sense of community. The, if you go to, you, you want to see soulless people, mm-hmm. go to the suburbs and look at like the middle, middle, upper, middle and upper middle class, predominantly white neighborhoods. And you'll see it's these people who just mechanically say hi to each other. Twice a day, and they, you know they mow their lawn and they go on their li- go about their lives that are completely scheduled to the point of I was reading um um uh, in, in uh, because Twitter recommends you these these feeds right based on what you post and um, I, I was posting something on sexual health I guess like it was a few weeks ago and then then a recommended tweet popped up and it was from this big time sexologist in New York City and she was talking about how to improve the sex life. Um, between between married couples because apparently it's a it's an epidemic of sexlessness or sexual dissatisfaction which leads to cheating and whatnot. Anyways, her recommendation was uh, you have to treat sex like a project and basically it needs to be managed. So this means very rigid scheduling. And I'm like, you know what? It just doesn't put me in the mood when I hear you know things be, you know, sex being talked about. That, but she was very serious. You need to have a project plan about your sex life. And you need to schedule your sex with your significant other. And then basically, at, I don't know, 5 p.m. every Thursday, that's it. Lights go out. And then you guys go about <laughs> and do your thing. And and somehow, miraculously, by, by doing it on a scheduled basis and managing it and managing risks and costs versus I'm like, who talks like that? Like, how? what's exciting about this way of living? But I know many people, predominantly white, uh, who actually – approach intimacy that way not just intimacy human relationships mm-hmm. they 
Some people even have, there's, there's software out there that actually allows you to manage your friendships. And then you have to input after each time you've met a person, you have to input like your interaction and then it's stratified based on different metrics. And then the software recommends who you should be meeting with most and then who you should be ignoring and then who you should be cutting out completely out of your life. And I, and I thought to myself, wow, that's truly technocracy. I mean, what was that quote you said? Like the true enemy of the people is not fascism or communism. It's technocracy. Yeah, yeah, Patrick Woods well, said it's that. It's very firmly entrenched into the lives of, of some people living in modern societies. You know, Georgie, I don't want you to not speak your mind at any time, but when you're walking down the street, uh, I don't want you to be the Bulgarian Reginald Denny. And so please just keep your <laughs> thoughts and opinions to yourself because I don't want anything to happen to you. And so right. just going to th- okay. throw that out there. <laughs> uh, yeah, man, it's uh, I appreciate that. I, yeah, it's this is such a sticky topic. And I do want to talk more. I know we talked about it last time with Ray, but I do want to kind of bring it up more because uh, I don't know, like, I, I'm curious of what the specific cause and what is going to result of this. You know, we were speculating so much of what coronavirus means and like, what is the specific cause? Like, what's the specific result for this uh, obviously inflated racial tension stuff that's happening? Well, I mean, it's if, if anything else, I'm, I'm sure there's stuff going on behind the scenes right now. Um, I, I, I just got a very interesting, my father is subscribed to foreign policy magazine. Mm-hmm. I subscribe him because he wants to, mm-hmm. but it, because it's under my, my email and uh, I keep getting like a, like a digest, a weekly digest of things. And they're saying that right now, because the, the real big project behind the scenes is China is, has almost fully digitized, digitized its currency. Mm-hmm. And in order for the U S and other superpowers to compete like Russia and India and whatnot, they have to do the same thing. I, I didn't quite get why exactly does this make China more competitive. Be- I guess because if if all the money is electronic and and basically the state controls it all, they can they can devalue it or or overvalue it any way they want that suits like the central planning, mm-hmm. right? So, but they're saying like uh, other countries like Russia, the United States, uh, India, and Brazil, and and you know basically they're not they're not there yet because too many people use cash. And they're saying now the big project behind the scenes is that to potentially digitize the dollar to the point where they will say no more than 10% of money will be actually in cash. If if And, and if you get caught carrying more cash than that, then there's a serious – they're not going to throw in jail, but they'll they'll um, devalue the currency like India did that with the large bills. Mm-hmm. So they'll say like, go you know, tomorrow, all bills – with serial number, you know, beyond certain and a hundred dollar denominations, you have 24 hours to turn them in, or or they will be they will be useless, right? Um, so so something is going on behind the scenes, something big and probably financial that we are um, we're being led astray instead of you know keeping keeping eye on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's been people have been saying that for a long time that that was one of the goals of the new world order type situation was to make all the cash uh, all the cash digital. Um. Yeah. Uh, next article. <laughs> we yeah, wrote. magnesium, vitamin D, and B12 combo. Uh, is that the one you thought I'm gonna pick? <laughs> uh, no, I, I wasn't sure. The, I have the statins one, the cardiolipin. I did want to talk about. Um, talk, probably talk about the serotonin, non-alcoholic fatty, fatty liver disease. Uh, but magnesium. Yeah, they're all cool. But I mean, I picked that one because it's still, I guess, it's still still relevant, mm-hmm. right? It's, we're all living in a pandemic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so guess what? Now even official studies are saying <laughs> you can take a magnesium. Uh, 
that's uh, I mean, if you look my post, I don't even know why they threw in the B, the B12 in there mm-hmm. because they give a very weak rationale. They say, oh, B12 is important for the gut bacteria, which actually rang a bell mm-hmm. because if you remember, you actually had an interview with, with Pete one time and asked him about supplementing with B12. He said, I don't think it's a good idea because it's actually um, it may stimulate bacterial overgrowth. And and several people have emailed me and their blood tests show very high B12 levels. And basically, like, subsequently, they found out they have, like, a Clostridia difficile infection or something else. So it seems to correlate. Can I just clarify? I, you, what you said might be right, but the one thing I do have from him is that he said when a person's B12 level is high on a blood test, that might mean they have a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because the type of bacteria right. produce B12. And I and I've... I think I've identified that in a handful of people like they they did have very high B12. I asked them if they were supplementing. They didn't. And their digestion would just be obviously like a wreck. And so I think that was part of it. But sorry. Go ahead. But I'm sure I actually I remember him saying several times that maybe in other interviews, maybe the KMUD ones, Mm -hmm. somebody asked about B12 as well. Mm -hmm. He said something along the same lines, but he also said that taking one supplementally is not a good idea because actually stimulates even more the bacterial overgrowth. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyways, long story short, they, that's the rationale actually they give. They say, oh, uh, you do need your microbiome for proper immune response. So you, that's how we're throwing the B12 in there. No other rationale. But the good news, magnesium and, and, and vitamin D in combination were strikingly effective. And first of all, uh, if you already have COVID-19, uh, they were really effective, especially in the elderly, in reducing the progression of COVID-19-12 to the point where you require hospitalization. And if you're already in hospital and they gave you this 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 combo, um, it it, it strong I think it decreased the chance by about fifty percent that you actually become critical or die. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that's a great finding. You know why are we not hearing about this? And we're talking about remdesivir or like the latest and greatest. I don't know what kind of toxic incarnation the pharma companies are working on. Even chloroquine would be less dangerous than these antivirals. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to do that. Now you can do the magnesium vitamin D. Um, magnesium is, has been known actually for, for a while to be helpful for antiviral disease. I think even Pete recommended a couple of times saying that it's a great immunostimulant um, and that if you, if you can ensure that the magnesium is actually absorbed and retained, he thought it was a great uh, antiviral remedy during flu season. Good stuff. So if you do get a, a fake COVID-19 test, you could treat it with magnesium, <laughs> vitamin D and B12. Um uh, do you want to do the cardiolipin one? I, I feel like that's important to go over because I think this grounds uh, a lot of the anti-PUFLA sentiment that we have on this show. So I think that's important for understanding. Yeah, I mean, the, basically the, the study found that, uh, you know, that with, with advancing age, the mitochondria functionality declines, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they, they said it's tied to a dysfunction in the lysosome which is a portion of the cell that recycles cellular debris inside of the cell. Um, I don't know why they decided to supplement with cardiolipin, but but I, I bet the rationale is because it's so important for the functionality of cytochrome C oxidase. Actually, actually, they say that, that it's very important for the... If you look at the actual... I remember reading it. If you look at the actual study, they actually say that cardiolipin is crucial for the functioning of, the, of complex 3 and complex 4, especially complex 4. So they basically said that, okay, so whatever the reason is, that, you know, the dysfunction of the lysosomes, by supplementing cardiolipin, we expect to see an increase in mitochondrial activity. Mm-hmm. So that's why they gave it sort of like to, 
to, to balance the decline, not by addressing the direct cause, which is the lysosome, but they, they fed, um, oh, there we go. It says the lysosome talks with the mitochondria through special fats called cardiolipins. So they, res but they restore this communication by, by basically feeding cardiolipin because they notice that the cardiolipin levels decline with aging as well. So they thought, okay, maybe that's the reason for the, for the miscommunication between the lysosomes and the mitochondria is the lack of cardiolipin. So they fed cardiolipin and the, the, basically the function um, of, the, you know, of the mitochondria was restored back to youthful levels. Um, I did not see, they did not specify what was the composition of the cardiolipin, but it was extracted from bovine hearts, which means it was mostly saturated. And I think that makes a crucial difference because I've seen studies with porcine cardiolipin being supplemented and the studies were, were, were not good. I mean, they were either no or they actually found reverse effects. It wasn't, it wasn't for that specific issue, but it, um, experiments with feeding cardiolipin are not new. They've been around for at least, I would say, 30 years. Um, and the ones, this specific one was with bovine cardiolipin, which means it's probably consists, its composition is probably about 90% or more saturated fat, mostly stearic acid. Yeah, this is a paper that Ray quoted, and just to quote on my Twitter, it says, our findings uh, that arachidonic acid and DHA, uh, I forgot how to pronounce that, concentrations increased, uh, increased supports the hypothesis that uh, cardiolipin remodeling occurs with aging. Increased lipid peroxidation is a plausible mechanism by which cardiolipin decreases with age. And then I have a few more here. Um, so as to what cardiolipin is, as you already mentioned, cardiolipin is a phospholipid found ex almost exclusively at the level of the inner mitochondrial membrane where it is biosynthesized under a thyroid hormone regulation, a specific and tight association between cytochrome C oxidase and cardiolipin. And then lastly, um, uh, PUFA and mitochondrial cardiolipin are attacked by mitochondria produced uh, reactive oxygen species. Cardiolipin is the most sensitive to the ROS induced peroxidation. This means that its peroxidation initiates a chain reaction, setting on fire other membrane uh, constituents. How do you say that? Constituents. Um, constituents. Yeah. So, so yeah, this is. I just feel like this is central because the accumulation of unsaturated fats over a lifetime uh, replaces the cardiolipin with unsaturated fats, and then that slows yeah. down the activity of cytochrome C oxidase, which is allowing you to do this electron transfer to oxygen. And so, and that, right. and Ray, th and uh, I think other people too, th uh, this cytochrome C oxidase is like very critical for mitochondrial respiration to happen. And that's why you, what elucidates the negative effects of nitric oxide as well. Yeah. I mean, and then that's what actually, that's what creates the reactive oxygen species. People think the result of proper mitochondrial function, yeah, yeah. they're not. Yeah. It's precisely when cytochrome C oxidase is not working, these electrons have to go somewhere, mm -hmm. right? And in earlier stages of the metabolism in the Krebs cycle, you can do the fatty acid synthase and you can turn these extra electrons into fat. Mm. Once you get to the electron transport chain complex, there isn't much that can be done. So the only thing that, that can be done is they can interact with the molecular oxygen and create the superoxide. And then that thing starts to wreak havoc with, on anything with an, with an unstable lipid attached to it. And, so, and since we're already into the inner mitochondrial membrane, then basically your prime target over there is going to be the membrane itself and constituents such as cardiolipin. So, so yeah. And that's why certain, certain nutrients like, like uh, you know, um, vitamin E or, or, or methylene blue, they're structural antioxidants. They actually prevent this, ex these excessive electrons from, from actually, you know, causing, creating the superoxide ions by accepting them. 
And then in the, in the in the case of vitamin E, so methylene blue will accept those extra electrons, right? So prevent them, you know, creating the superoxide anion and other reactive species. And then vitamin E will actually protect those those unstable lipids. So even though if you have a buildup of these electrons, um, they will be less likely to cause damage. So I would actually probably say that methylene blue may be a more important antioxidant because it will take care of those extra electrons because even if you're fully if you're loaded up on vitamin E, those extra free electrons are not a good sign. They will do some damage even if it, it's not attacking the, 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 the unstable lipids. So, so like one way to think about antioxidants or uh, is that they uh, withdraw electrons from the system. And one of the major problems in stress and aging is this like jam in the electron transport chain. And that creates the free radicals. And then they steal electrons from unsaturated fats, and, and that creates a negative chain reaction. Basically, like actually, actually, methylene blue's antioxidant effect is by it being an oxidant. Mm-hmm. So oxidizing agents withdraw electrons, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But by withdrawing them, it's preventing the creation of reacting oxygen species, which damage the lipids. Mm-hmm. So it's it's by restoring me- Bottom line is by restoring metabolism back to normal. You're creating an antioxidant effect, by, and by antioxidant meaning preventing these these damaging oxygen uh, superoxide species and hydroxyl groups and whatnot from damaging the the structure of the cell, right? Uh, because when, when people think of antioxidants, estrogen is an antioxidant, but in a bad way. It creates a reductive state. So there are two ways of thinking of 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 antioxidants. One by shifting the balance from oxidation to reduction. That is an antioxidant by definition, right? But I would like to think of it more as a hypoxin. So in other words, it prevents the, oxi- the uh, prevents the oxygen from doing its job, and that's what re- results in the accumulation of free electrons. Mm. Proper antioxidants like vitamin E or methylene blue, they don't act that way. They protect the targets, in the case of vitamin E, they protect the, instru- the, the unstable lipids, but don't mess up with the ability to use oxygen. In fact, vitamin E is known to improve the utilization of oxygen because it opposes estrogen, precisely because it opposes estrogen. Um, and then electron acceptors, by accepting these extra, these ec- extra electrons, they prevent the situation where reactive oxygen species will be created, right? So it's like indirect antioxidant effect. And I think it's the latter one that's more important. Uh, the first one that the estrogen does is actually bad. It's it's a form of hypoxia. So this is like, uh, correct me if I'm misunderstanding, but the antioxidant is like just a bad name because that's anti-loss, yes. anti-loss of electrons. But the whole exactly. thing we're talking about is we want to lose our electrons to, exactly. to oxygen. But exactly. um, but it's impo- or, or to a safe acceptor like a quinone or something like that. Okay. Like uh, as long as they're not sticking around and to create to create havoc to wreak havoc, then it's then it's okay. And then in the superoxide and the hydroxyl group, are those where are those produced in specific places in the electron transport chain from like the complexes? Um, uh, yeah, I mean actually actually all four can produce them, mm-hmm. but but basically any any place where you have uh, three and four tend to produce them the most because that's where oxygen, molecular oxygen is involved the most. But because it's already in, into the mitochondria, it's not limited to, to those specific locations. Mm-hmm. So in other words, once you start getting, you know, unused oxygen floating around because it, the, the electrons are not making it to the oxygen to be accepted by it properly, which happens through the final step of step four, then you're asking for trouble. That oxygen actually starts becoming problematic. It it's results in the creation of the superoxide 
anion and you know that is very reactive and it's like you're having a it's it's known to actually uh, even damage dna so it can be mutagenic mutagenic if if this continues for too long and we can if you don't have any specific thoughts on this we can move on but um i was reading another repeat person named jay he wrote an article about uh what was it like fad to increasing in, in fatty acid oxidation and that blocking maybe co- complex one. Um, I am totally forgetting all the details, but I thought that was really interesting because it e- either somebody has said it and it never stuck or this was the first time it actually stuck. But that was that's part of the sh- complex two is FAD dependent. Okay. Uh, flavonine, di- uh, flavonine uh, dinucleotide. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's similar to NAD, but it's the based on riboflavin. And basically, if you don't have enough riboflavin, complex two will not work. So you can get a um, there was a there was a chart floating around. I have to send it to you. They basically say that that eighty percent of the energy you produce, eighty percent of the ATP you synthesize depends on NAD, and the other twenty percent depend on FAD. So you'll still be. I mean, uh, so the NAD is much more important, right? But but if you if you have a riboflavin deficiency or it's the synthesis of FAD from riboflavin is not working properly for some reason, you're gonna have a metabolic problem, and actually it leads to the Melaz syndrome. Uh, mitochondrial encephalopathy and stroke, and I'm forgetting exactly what the, but basically you're getting these these stroke-like episodes, muscle weakness, you know, you uh, slurring your speech and similar similar symptoms, and actually they're easily correctable by by riboflavin, um, and that's that's I think it's a pretty good indication how important is uh, FAD for the mitochondria. Sweet, I wish I could, uh, uh, I should have written what he said down. Um, okay. So how long have we been streaming here? Let me check. Uh, so we're about an hour in. Uh, we should spend a, a few more, maybe one or two more articles, then get to Super Chats and then call it a day because I'm sure that will take a little while. Uh, was there any other article that you... I thought the food, food emulsifiers and endotoxin cause brain bleeding. Um, I think this is like a really important study because even though it was on a specific, very specific type of brain bleeding uh, called cavernous angioma mm-hmm. or angioma. I don't know how exactly they pronounce it. Um, actually, type of the, the rates of hemorrhaging stroke have been have been increasing over the last 20 to 30 years. And I think at this point, they're on par with ischemic stroke, which was what the typical view of cardiovascular disease that everybody has in their mind is bad cholesterol blocking your arteries, you know, and basically like, you know, uh, at some point, a little piece gets chipped off of the wall and starts circulating around and then it blocks an artery and that's it. You get the, the ischemic stroke or the heart attack. Um, that, you know, that is, you know, a, I guess a decent description of, of the ischemic stroke, but rates of the hemorrhaging stroke, which is much more dangerous and difficult to treat um, and often require surgery um, because if you get a severe brain bleeding, they have to get that blood out of the uh, subarachnoid space or you can actually put pressure in your brain and cause the brain to herniate and that's almost universally lethal so the rates anyways the rates of hemorrhaging uh, hemorrhaging strokes have been increasing and it's been a mystery what 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 could possibly be causing it uh yet at the same time the people who actually who you know who uh, get get into uh you know end up in the hospital with uh, one of these things they've they've uh, they've done blood tests and and in you know almost always they have elevated HDL. Mm-hmm. So HDL is one of the most reliable biomarkers of of elevated endotoxin. There's a specific test for endotoxin. I think it's called endotoxin carrying protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also soluble soluble CD14, 
these these are also, but they're very rarely done as tests. I mean, a hematologist has to be looking for something specific to be doing these tests. The more common one and the one that almost every doctor tests is HDL. And subsequent, I mean, numerous studies have already established that having a high HDL is not a good sign. Actually, if your HDL is high, but your LDL is low, that's a very, very bad sign. And, and at this point, even mainstream medicine is recognizing that. Anyways, long story short, uh, most of the people who ended up in a hospital and died from a hemorrhaging stroke, they've been found to have elevated HDL, which to me was was a connection to elevated endotoxin. And this study, even though it's not on hemorrhaging stroke, but a, a different type of bleeding in the brain, which is actually even more serious, mm-hmm. um, with higher lethality rate, higher mortality rate, it found that in a mouse model that endotoxin and very a, a number of different food emulsifiers that are thought to be safe. Um, I mean, at this point, we all know that carrageenan is a pretty some, is a pretty nasty stuff. That, despite the fact that it's extracted from algae, it's actually banned in several countries because it's a known colon carcinogen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, you know, carrageenan aside, people tend to think that the various gums are perfectly fine, right? Acacia gum, locust bean gum. Um, you know, gum arabica, whatever it's called, that they're all just, you know, uh, emulsifiers extracted from plants. Well, every single one of these that they tried caused the exact same uh, bleeding problems that that elevated endotoxin caused, and there was this lethal disease called cavernous angioma. So, and, and actually, they, they tested the emulsifiers in, at, in pretty low levels. So that's what we're eating. I mean, these, these emulsifiers are everywhere, even in organic foods. In fact, uh, I, I've I've looked at uh, the labels of uh, compared organic to non-organic yogurts in my local Whole Foods. The non-organic ones typically use pectin or modified cornstarch. Now I'm not sure at this point which one is worse, because as as bad as the genetically modified cornstarch is, I mean I don't know of any studies that show that can lead to such you know severe bleeding problems in the brain. However, the all of the organic brands had not just one. But at the very least, two and often three of these emulsifiers. So you know, you know, there was a there was a guy who uh, who uh, used to uh, send me emails just when I was starting into the whole Pete community. He kept saying, "Hey man, one, mark my word, one day you'll you'll find out this whole organic thing is a scam." <laughs> and and I and I kept saying, "Well, what do you mean?" He's like, "Look, whenever there is whenever there is money into something, mm-hmm. basically there's sort their forces already in there trying to corrupt it and." kind of keep it looking nice on paper, but at the same time lower as much as possible the cost of production by compromising the standard. And, and you know, he didn't talk about the gums, but he kept saying that, that organic stuff is bullshit. He has been bullshit for a long time. Uh, he claimed that the, the standard was created, I mean, didn't claim, but the standard was created by USDA, in, I think in the 70s. And he said that by the middle of the 80s, there was already, that it was so heavily compromised that when they did tests on lab animals, it showed that the non-organic food was causing classical problems that they, they didn't think was serious, like cardiovascular disease, arthritis and whatnot, and organic foods were causing cancer. Um, so I have to I have to dig out those studies. They'll be very interesting to to talk about because um, you know, this means there was the new stuff, the experimental stuff was being thrown into the organic standard because it was still new and being developed and they could get away with it. Well, the older stuff that's been around for decades, if not centuries, that's pretty based on pretty established laws. There isn't that much room, wiggle room to you know to uh, to compromise. 
Yeah, you know, I suspect this is why some people feel better on um, the carnivore diets. Like if you only eat meat, you're avoiding citric acid, carrageenan, uh, gums, yeah. and so many different additives, you know. And so I don't <clears throat> I know for myself, like, I, you know how some people will say, like, oh, don't fast. Uh, you should eat to avoid the stress. Well, I, I'd rather fast for multiple days than like eat something with carrageenan in it because that would upset my stomach so badly that I'd rather literally go without food for a long time. And so it's definitely you can actually survive pretty well on orange juice uh, because it's got decent amount of actually it's pretty good pretty good amount of the uh, of the electrolytes mm -hmm. of the alkaline minerals. And they keep together with the sugar and some of the some of the uh, the phytonutrients in there, like the flavonoids. They they keep cortisol from doing a lot of its damage on the muscles. So you're not going to lose a lot of muscle mass if you fast, but you drink orange juice throughout the day. Um, so so you, uh, that's probably the only fast that I support. I mean, yes, if you're forced, if you know that for the next two days you'll be you you'll have the choice of really crappy food. <laughs> or maybe like some, you know, you have access to orange juice and, and, and a little bit of cheese. I would go with that even if it's heavily, if you're not meeting your caloric demands. Yeah. Uh, but you can fast on orange juice and still be okay. You will not be, you, you will not look gone. Yeah, yeah. Let me just, let me clarify a little bit. So I think the only times where I've been like forced to fast for a long time is when traveling. And so okay. for when I'm in the airport or whatever, I would rather fast than eat some super shitty food that I knew was going to upset my stomach but I, i'm just throwing that out there because i know a lot of people uh make that kind of um wager they'll say like they'll mention, tell somebody not to fast because they should eat but right. i'm just saying it's slightly right. more complicated i think okay yeah it's better not to eat if you have to eat toxins instead right yeah okay you know i found the thing let me just say this just because it was on my mind so this is jay feldman and it's nadh versus fa uh, fadh2 and this is in relation to using glucose or fat as a main source of fuel and he says nadh and fadh2 are both electron carriers that donate electrons and electron transport chain allowing the production of atp blah blah, blah. um Glucose oxidation produces 25% more NADH and half as much FADH2 as fat oxidation. Together, this leads to a ratio of FADH2 to NADH that is around 2.5 times lower than that of fat oxidation. Um, and then he says, because F FADH2 donates electrons at complex 2 downstream of yep. complex 1, it reduces the amount of ubiquinone available to accept electrons at com complex 1 leading to a buildup of electrons at complex one. And then he goes on to say all the problems. And for one, this increase the, uh, this increases the electron leakage at complex one, which increases the production of ROS, specifically superoxide. And so this is kind of interesting because sometimes people will say like keto diets emulate cancer therapy. And they're, they're really talking about it increasing like the reactive, reactive oxygen species. And kind of right. cellular harm, <laughs> right? Is that is that off base or is that is that right? No, it's actually it's actually true. But basically, the the reason the reactive oxygen things work are that that they're both they're both helpful and harmful. The helpful part is that the reactive oxygen species can actually oxidize the reduced glutathione, mm -hmm. and and that by itself can cause the cancer cell to undergo apoptosis. Mm -hmm. So anytime you reduce, you shift the cell towards more towards oxidation, uh, and if you shift the balance beyond a certain, like a, like a critical point, any sick cell will actually immediately uh, uh, commit apoptosis. And one way to do it is by raising carbon dioxide, 
Another way is by basically bombarding that cell with reactive oxygen species. They can oxidize the glutathione, uh, the reduced one back into the oxidized one. The bad part of the reactive oxygen species is that by attacking the cell, basically the cell uh, continues, this accelerates the process of division. Mm -hmm. So, and this is why usually when you go on chemotherapy and they kill the original cancer, usually, yes, they kill the large primary tumor, but within a month, or actually even while you're getting the chemotherapy, you get metastasizes everywhere, mm -hmm. small ones, mm -hmm. precisely because it triggers both the division and uh, and awakens the cancer stem cells. So you 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 just uh, turn the the cancer in you know it's still a systemic issue, but from a relatively localized problem for a specific organ into essentially you know you know multiple thousands, if not millions, smaller versions of it everywhere and that are, those are much harder to treat. Any oncologist will tell you that they would rather deal with a very large and, and well-established primary tumor that's localized than a million smaller metastases because once that happens, actually even the classification of cancer, if you have, if you, or if you have metastases, I think you're already at the very least stage two and often you're stage three, right? But if you have a very, no matter how large your primary tumor is, if it's relatively local, if it's localized and has not yet uh, involved the lymphatic tissue around it, you are at stage one, no matter how big that tumor is. So that's what the reactive, that's what the reactive oxygen species do. The doctors are hoping that they will kill the primary tumor, right? But it, they will not trigger the, the, the reactivation of the stem cells. And basically, like they will, the division of the tumor will be overwhelmed. So while the tumor is quickly, as soon as you hit it with reactive oxygen species, the division is speeds up by several thousand fold. And they're hoping that you will kill it quicker than it will be able to reproduce itself and send those seeds, you know, around the body. More often than not, it does not work. And then this electron leak, the the synthesis of ketones is kind of an antidote to this in in some some way shape or form right because, yeah yeah, yeah okay. basically if you have extra electrons you i mean you can you can uh, create ketones by accepting those extra electrons mm -hmm. and so that might mitigate this uh contributing to the whole slowdown process but because if the ketones weren't around this would probably like burn up a person pretty quickly right and so that's kind of mitigating some of the harm is that right yeah okay yeah Okay, interesting. Thank you. Just satisfying my own understanding. I appreciate it. Yeah, but basically, it shows you that you know, you, you know, you don't want to be using up. This also suggests that CoQ10 could be could be a viable therapy for cancer. Mm -hmm. um, there have been several several trials for Parkinson with very high dosages, uh, between two and three grams daily, and they were really really promising. But I have not seen any follow up because the you know there were human trials, but they were small scale, maybe like. 30 to 50 people that weren't full-blown. Well, then first of all, you, you know, you're never going to get a company to sponsor a clinical trial that leads to CoQ10 being approved for cancer. But interestingly, all of the ones that I've seen for Parkinson with smaller, not cancer, but any disease, uh, I've seen these trials with, uh, with CoQ10 for Parkinson, and they all claim re remarkable success, yet there was no follow-up for any of them. Um, but... If it works so well for Parkinson's disease, I, I think those same dosages could be tried uh, for cancer as well. Um, I asked Ray a long time ago about this, and he said, 
Uh, yes, but I think uh, vitamin K can actually do everything CoQ10 does, does at lower dosages and then some. I'm the only one that can do a, a Ray impression here, George. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I'm just joking. Sorry. <laughs> I like, you, are, you, are, you are much better. I, like your, I have a bad yeah. accent and it, it just butchers You it. have a Bulgarian Ray Pete accent. There's nothing, nothing wrong yeah. with that. Um. Okay, good stuff. Uh, thank you for clarifying that. So I have the blocking serotonin and then the SSRI one, and then we can move on to Super Chats unless there's other, any other article you wanted to chat about. Um, yeah, so I think the blocking serotonin, is, is that's pretty important because if you go to any doctor and ask them what's causing NAFLD, they'll say too much sugar, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then like a lot of people say, well, you're eating too much. I mean, maybe too many calories. Whatever the reason is, um, you basically you will never hear – from anybody that the, the cause may be hormonal or God forbid serotonin is involved, the happy hormone. You really, really hacking at the foundation of medicine there because if that, if that pillar falls, then I think, I think if we, we manage to gut serotonin, um, I don't think medicine, much of medicine will survive. Mm-hmm. So many different things depend on that, on that mantra. Uh, and so many different things will fall simply because they're so, so inter- interconnected. Anyways, long story short, about three months ago, I posted another study which showed that cortisol, uh, elevated cortisol, is a direct cause of NAFLD, and cortisol and serotonin are very tightly correlated. Um, Serotonin is unlike what your doctor will tell you. Serotonin levels are actually elevated in depression, and there's very serious evidence that 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 this elevation is causal. More importantly... Serotonin is the most potent endogenous stimulator of the HPA axis. So you cannot have high serotonin and not have high cortisol or one aspect of the HPA axis. Maybe your CRH will be elevated. Maybe your ACTH will be elevated, right? Because, you know, it stimulates the entire cascade. Um, Whether you have high cortisol or not will probably depend largely on how functional your adrenal glands are. In some people, like with advancing edge, they start to atrophy. So you may not always get the Cushing level, Cushing syndrome level hypercortisolemia, but still, the, that study from a few months ago showed that even mild elevations in cortisol over time reliably caused non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And given that serotonin, now this study is saying serotonin can cause it. They didn't say serotonin caused it. They, they said that an anti-serotonin agent can cure it and... By 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 you know extension, they said this means that seroto- peripheral serotonin has is has very different effects from central serotonin, which is known as the happy hormone. But in your gut or in your peripheral tissues, serotonin can be a what do they call it like a like a, a, a an evil entity or something like that. Um, so they're still clinging on to that thing that somehow there are two types of serotonin. There's one <laughs> in your brain that magically cures every problem you have, and the one the exact same molecule that's circulating around in your body every elsewhere is bad, right? Mm-hmm. And long story short, they used the serotonin antagonist and it cured the mice of fatty liver. Um, so you know, I I think that's that's pretty pretty pretty. And then now they're wondering, given that I don't know, like. A quarter to a third of all women are on antidepressants, on a serotonergic antidepressants. What do you expect? Then, then, then this, of course, there's now an epidemic of fatty liver disease and even cirrhosis and liver cancer. Mm-hmm. And the, the the cause is mysterious. We just we just don't know. It's some evil force that's that's materializing out of nowhere and 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 causing these mysterious diseases when the evidence is staring us in the face. 
Yeah, and apparently physicians think that it's it's uh, not safe for or it's safe for the baby when a, a woman is pregnant to take SSRIs. So that's just let that sink in for a little. <laughs> okay, so let- and it's actually if you want me to scare and depress you even more, SSRIs are now approved for toddlers. Um, so that's that's some pretty nasty stuff. I mean, even if the baby you know did not was not born with with, with autism, you can bet that child will have autism by the age of five. If at the age of two, you started giving it antidepressants, how on earth would you recognize depression in a child that's two years old? Like <laughs> this is really beyond me. I've actually I know a psychiatrist who is the father of of a girl. She's the girl is very good friend with with my younger daughter, um, and basically like he's a psychiatrist. He treats children as well. So I asked him like, how do you treat children? He's like, oh, they're they're very specific checklists. You know, I just follow the checklist. I'm like, you just follow the checklist. So, so how do you communicate with a two-year-old? Oh, you don't have to communicate. So, what do you do? Oh, we just observe and basically, like, um, you know, the child. We give it the child some toys, and if the child refuses to play, uh, you know, basically that's you know strike one. And then basically, you know, we give the child some sweet food, and the child refuses to eat sweet food, which may actually, that actually, the second part has some <laughs> has some reasoning behind it, because it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a in in animal models a sign of anhedonia, right? So they're saying children always like sweets, so if they refuse to eat sweets, something's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So they, he, he enumerated a, a number of different things that only the sugar avoidance thing is kind of – that struck me as like a somewhat reasonable thing. Everything else was so arbitrary. and it, But once, they, once they, they basically collect points, as he said it, once they collect six out of ten, automatically depression, right? I'm like, it cannot be anything else? Oh, well, I mean, it's hard to say because it's they're two years old, you know. So so hold on a second. So you know that these drugs have serious side effects, right? They're psychotropic. They're changing the mind of that person. So why is this? Why is it acceptable? Well, I mean, basically, we have to start as early as possible to limit future damage. Well, well, well we don't even know if this person has depression. Well, I mean, that's that's that. We, he's like, look, I don't even have latitude in these things. You just don't understand. I I follow a checklist. Like wow, that's like it's starting to sound more and more like the Nuremberg trials. I was just following orders, man. <laughs> what do you want from me? You know, it's so it's not an orders, it's checklist, right? Uh, but no, he was pretty open. He said, I don't know if they have depression, but I do have a checklist, and we do these tests, and basically, if they score six out of ten or more, automatically we you know we labeled. He's like, it's not even to, up to me. The insurance company will actually battle you if you diagnose them with something else because they'll say. Give me the results of the assessment. So he sends that assessment, and he's like, if I say something else, the insurance company will say, why did you stray from established diagnostic criteria? And he's like, there's nothing I can say in return. The patient will not pay. The insurance company will not pay. He's like, I'll go bankrupt. So he's like, that's it. I just follow the checklist. Yep. Anyways, but but they are approved for, for children um, that are two or older. So you can get these drugs as well. I mean, for your child. That, that's news to me. I didn't know that. Speaking of, so SSRI drugs increase violent behavior and promote recidiv- recidivism. I don't even know what that means. What does it mean? Uh, repeating crime. Ah, okay. Let's see. And you call it serotonin is the master switch of the, the danger signal. And so serotonin yeah. being right in the center of that complex biochemical web of stress, uh, and, so, and Ray has a quote I posted on my Twitter a few times. It's like, you can't understand what he's working on unless you understand where serotonin fits in. He says something like, 
uh, to understand estrogen, you have to understand serotonin and to understand polyunsaturated fats. You have to understand estrogen and serotonin and to understand thyroid. You have to understand, Oh, uh, you have to understand all of those. And so I think that's, um, a lot of the burden or the barrier to entry to all of this stuff is it's, it's so many reversals of so many things that are commonly thought of in a specific way. And so I, I think that's, uh, I mean, probably why we do these to get the message out, but, but yeah, serotonin. But, but the good news is because they're so interrelated, right? And if serotonin is such a, is at the core, mm-hmm. you tackle serotonin, many other things may fall out, may, may fall apart simply because you will not be able to continue with these. Well, Let's not let's not challenge medicine. We know that they can hold paradoxical views and sell a lot of <laughs> toxic drugs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's not tempt them, but but I'm hoping that if serotonin is toppled, then many other things will fall apart. Um, so basically, uh, you know, the uh, uh, I have, um, I mean, uh, as I said in this post, not many people know, but when Prozac, which is the first, I think SSRI that was officially approved, when Prozac was first approved in the United States. Uh, of course, the I think it was Eli Lilly who who produces it. They immediately wanted to expand their market, and they went to Europe, Western Europe at the time, because I think it was like the late '80s, so communism was still existing. So Western Europe was the free part of Europe, and they went there and and they tried to push Germany to start prescribing it. Yet when the German BGA, the equivalent of the FGA, I think it stands for like Bundestag Gesundheit Agent Agency <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> So, anyways, it's the basically means like the the people's health agency. Um, when they looked at the evidence, they said, "You gotta be kidding me! <laughs> you want us to approve this drug for depression? Yet this drug reliably causes—I mean, causes a, a significant percentage of people to commit suicide, and they weren't suicidal mm-hmm. before. I mean, why would we do that? Let—they said if we let the depressed people untreated, smaller percentage will commit suicide than if we put them on the drug." And and for a while, basically, the you know Germany was able to resist that in 1987. I think was when this 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 started. For a while, they were they were actually able to to resist. But I think eventually the United States threatened to like um, pull out the military base. Um, there's a massive military base in Germany, um, and then withhold some other basically threatened financial sanctions and you know um, you know toppling the economy. Um, un- unless Germany agrees to allow to allow, it, this is just over one drug, so Germany succumbed. But I think to this day, what Germany did is that they said, okay, we we have to agree to follow whatever the Empire orders us to do. But um, but here's what we're gonna do: they they created something called Commission E. Here's the letter E, and what Commission E did um, went out there and took all of the folk remedies that were recorded in German folklore and tested them under controlled environment and basically created this handbook um, of, of herbal medicines that are equivalent or better than existing drugs. So if you go to Germany to this day, you're actually allowed and your doctor will probably talk to you about it. Well, I don't know, maybe the younger ones are more corrupt. But your doctor likely will at least mention herbal remedies such as St. John's Worth, which contains basically... Um, uh, like several alkaloids that are known to be potent antidepressants, and you can in Germany you can actually get prescribed Saint John's Wort as a drug, and you can get you can get it prescribed as as a treatment for depression. And a recent study found that the Germans have the highest rate of non-pharmaceutical drug usage in 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 the entire European Union. I don't think that that's by coincidence. Basically, that the government said, okay. We're getting our arms twisted here. We can't do much against the invasion of these pharmaceutical drugs, but 
we can give you an alternative and they spend money and about a decade co co uh, collecting this and i think this book is, is available um in in english and i think somebody tried to digitize it but anyways you know, i'll find it i'll send you the link for whoever is interested long story short uh you know prozac was known from the very beginning to increase suicide and violent behavior um and basically this newest study is coming out of sweden and it's showing that people given SSRIs develop a tendency to commit violent crimes that they didn't have this tendency before. And the violent effects can last for up to 12 weeks after halting SSRI treatment. Guess what? I looked at the study. It only followed them for up to 12 weeks <laughs> later. We don't know if these effects actually ended the 12 weeks or not. All they're saying is that for the 12 weeks that, let me rephrase, for the 12 weeks of follow-up that mm -hmm. we did, <laughs> the effects continued to be there. More importantly, it increased, basically, the um, um, it increased uh, risk of violent criminality in adults as well as adolescents, so both children and adults, right? And and I guess the most important thing is basically it, it made past offenders more likely to recommit a violent <laughs> crime during SSRI treatment. Um, and uh, there's at least three or four posts on the forum, repeat forum, that I've made over the past, the, the several years in the past, uh, that show that not only is, is this well known, but apparently governments around the world are well aware of the connection between SSRI usage and violent crime. Uh, there, was, there was even a study, was unofficial because it will never get published in a journal. It was, it was a sort of like a, a self-study done by a statistician who said that every violent crime that you can think of in the United States that was done over the last 10 years, the, whereas, wh whether there was a mass shooting, right? Or it was like a, some kind of like, a, I don't know, um, violent crime, like, a, I don't know, uh, breaking into people's homes, like robbing and raping and whatnot. Every single one of these people was on at least one psychotropic drug. And I think in more than 80% of the cases, they, had, they were taking an SSRI on top of other things. But the SSRI was present in 80% of the cases. And many times, these people were not violent, basically. They, you can trace, yeah, uh, as much as this person could, you can trace their violent behavior you know, to them starting to see a therapist and getting prescribed a drug. Yeah, I'm just turning the lights because... Uh... Uh, guys, thank you so much for joining us this Friday. Please like this episode, as I mentioned before. Like That, that really helps us. It's such a small thing you can do, but... It supports these shows and I think gets the word out or shows that people at least enjoy them to some degree. And, and um, yeah, can, can you continue your thought and then I'll go through my diatribe. Uh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, I, I was going to switch to ketamine because I think that's that, that's actually a pretty monumental oh, yeah, study. It. Uh, it, it puts another nail in the coffin of serotonin. So um, almost everybody at this point knows that Ketamine, also known as Special mm -hmm. K in the club world. <laughs> I have not used it. I swear to God, I, I have never used it. Um, we do not use illicit drugs at ID Labs. <laughs> After hours and under control. No, I'm just joking. Um, so anyways, ketamine um, was recently approved by the FDA as a fast-acting antidepressant, working within minutes of administration. Um, now, here's what has, I mean, uh, a little bit of digression here. LSD, ketamine, ecstasy, also known as MDA, uh, MDMA officially, all of these drugs are, are classified as Schedule 1, the most severe, kind of like a illegally, the most illegal drug you can possess in the United States and actually many other countries around the world. You get caught with one of these things, even in small amounts for personal usage, 
you're looking at jail time, you know, even even a first time offender. Yet what happened is that over the last, I would say five years, because I've been tracking the research, I noticed that more and more pharmaceutical companies are doing research with these drugs. So now all of these drugs are heavily illegal, yet little by little, they're making their way back into the back into society, or at least the legally obedient part of society, in the form of extremely expensive formulations of the exact mm. same drugs that you're being told that will drive you completely berserk and you will ruin society and civilization as we know it. I'm speaking of LSD. Or, you know, when you're on, on ecstasy, you're 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 turning into into a hypersexualized uh, mindless animal. This was, I think, quote from a Republican senator from South Carolina, or uh, many others have said the same, pretty much the same things. Or ketamine, you basically, it's it's it, it was a sedative for horses. It was not meant to be used for humans. And people who who use ketamine are uh, are uh, causing physical damage to their brain with every single usage. That's that's actually I think quote from the Surgeon General um, back in the nineties. Long story short. These drugs are slowly coming back in terms of, you know, is, is now officially uh, uh, sanctioned drugs. Um, of the three that I mentioned, only LSD has not been approved yet. MDMA, I think, is either approved already or about to be approved as a very fast-acting and permanent treatment of post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. disorder, something that's really a huge problem, not only in the general population, but specifically in the military. Um, the official stats say a third of the military suffers from PTSD. So what do we know now that given how political these things are, you can double that number and you'll probably be closer <laughs> to the truth. So ecstasy cures it, cures it. And even the studies say cures it. Now ketamine, the, it's known that ketamine has an antidepressant effect, but, but we've always been told that it acts through this obscure and unknown mechanism possibly involving the NMDA receptor and acting there as an antagonist. Yet... When you bring up other NDMA anti NMDA antagonists, such as magnesium, you immediately get this this violent response saying like, no, uh, you know, magnesium, like this is such a simple mechanism, it could never explain the, the antidepressant effects that ketamine has. Well, then why are you proposing it? And now I found out why. Because it turns out that ketamine cures depression by rapidly lowering serotonin and simultaneously increasing dopamine. Now, if that doesn't prove for you that serotonin is the cause of depression and doing anything to lower it or oppose it actually cures it and very rapidly, then I don't know what would. But it now I understand why for decades there was such a reluctance because I suspect that the government knew for a long time that ketamine has an anti-serotonin effect. But, you, of course, you, you can never admit this publicly. And the official mechanism of action based on which the FDA approval was issued, is still uh, NDMA ant antagonism. Uh, so uh, so we'll see. But I, I thought it was a pretty seminal study because the first one that says lowering serotonin and or increasing dopamine not only cures depression, but it does so rapidly within several hours of, of administering whatever treatment has, has, these, has these results. Awesome stuff. Thank you for that. Uh, okay. So guys like this episode that really supports us, appreciate it. Subscribe to the channel and leave a comment. And also you'll be entered into the Tokovit giveaway. And for anybody that wasn't with us at the beginning of the show, a DBO 514 has won a bottle of Tokovit. So please email me Danny at Danny Um, 
I'll just give my little speech again. <laughs> this is a user-supported uh, show, or like an audience-supported show, rather. And so, again, because of the things we talk about, especially those Ray episodes, we don't show up in rankings. And so, uh, yeah, any little thing you guys can do, that helps us, and we appreciate it. Effort has been put into the audio quality. Hopefully this sounds better. I'll bet, I bet I will find out after the show is over. Um, and working on getting all the episodes on a podcast aggregator, because that's been something that's been repeatedly requested and i just uh didn't have really the uh know-how to do it but uh but now i think i I figured it out and then uh, again not to go over speaking of promotion yeah yeah. let me interject a little bit i recently read an article because i do come from an it background that google is now changing their algorithm to more heavily take into account twitter uh, uh position so any retweets of the episode will likely help Google change its mind. Well, I shouldn't say will, might. But if Google really does, you know, now give preference to tweets and especially retweets, that will be a great way because uh, even if even if it's just retweeting it to your network, um, you know, they don't necessarily have to like it. So it's not so much so much the likes it's, as it is because Google suspects that some people are running bots and liking their mm-hmm. own episodes, right? But retweets apparently... Are, are now factoring much more heavily into the into the Google algorithm. Yeah, I, I see our future involving another service, I think. So DLive is another popular live streaming service, and I'm investigating how to dual stream over there so we could stream still on YouTube and then stream over there. I'm not like totally sold on DLive as a platform, but there's really no other streaming services, like f- free, big, big ones. Yeah. And so... Again, I think, to, like I talked about in the beginning, like some of the things I think we talk about are, are, are t- taboo in some way, shape, or form. And so I think that's always going to put us behind in YouTube. And so, yeah. And again, we don't do the show for the numbers or anything, but it's it's sad to see like not a lot of growth over a long period of time. And so, um, yeah. But anyways, thank you guys. I'm seeing a lot of comments on my my Twitter feed <laughs> about the episode. So, I mean, there's there's a lively discussion about that on Twitter. Maybe maybe not on on YouTube. Maybe Google is killing all of that. But other other areas where this the stream makes it to, I think they you can see that the 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 community there interacts with it. They they're engaged. Yeah. Again, extremely happy with the the trajectory of the show. I just. I, I think it would be a shame to not think that we weren't being slowed down a little bit by the thi- by the things we talk about that are not favored by YouTube specifically. Um, okay, so follow Georgie on Twitter uh, at Haydut, uh, idealabsdc.com, Georgie's uh, supplement company. Are you working on anything new? Want to talk about anything specifically? Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, there is an ongoing study with Pyroset. Um, and... Let's see. I mean, should I say, should I jinx it? Okay, let's maybe I won't jinx it. So it's it is for the exact same murine leukemia that we used cortinone plus for, but uh, this time the results are striking. We may actually have a cure. Um, so let's see what happens. So it's been 25 days into the study, it usually goes on for 60. So on the 25th day, uh, they actually kill a few animals from each group and dissect them to see the development of the tumor firsthand. The, you know, first they do palpation, which is like touching the outside of the animal where they expect the tumors, where they normally develop, right? And basically, it's a study with Oxidal and mm-hmm. Pyroset. So the Pyroset group, the, the Pyroset and Oxidal combination, we haven't started yet. That's 
logistic nightmare that I learned the hard way that it always happens no matter what you do. But anyways, the group receiving only Pyroset, the two animals that were killed three days ago and were dissected, have zero tumors. So uh, this is unheard of. Um, so we'll see what happens. But if that continues, if we get even one animal after, you know, basically extending for, with no tumor, and I'm not talking about metastasis, no tumor formed, and this is a marine, marine leukemia virus that is known as 100% transplantable, 100% lethal. So we, if we get uh, even one animal to be cured or at least have no tumor beyond the 60 days, I think that's huge. Uh, they may finally shut me down. <laughs> if, that, if that actually happens. So we'll see if it's good news or bad news. But so far, it's going in a really positive direction. I did not expect such a great result from, from a humble Pyroset because these two ingredients, you can you know get them pretty much, well, not, not from Amazon, but you can buy them from chemical companies um, you know around the world. And um, the proposed mechanism does seem to be uh, inhibition of fatty acid oxidation because... They, they, before killing the animals, they did some biomarker analysis. And as we expect, basically, like the blood glucose is normal in the regular animals. It's really high in the cancer-stricken animals because their cortisol levels are very high. So in the ones that got the pyroset, basically the, the, the cortisol levels are normalized. The inflammatory markers, biomarkers mm. are normal. If you remember a very old interview from Ray, he said that all cancer patients have elevated erythrocyte sedimentation mm -hmm. rate. It's like one of the systemic biomarkers of inflammation. It, we did confirm that it's very high in the cancer animals. The ones without the tumor, their levels are close to zero. So that seems to correlate with basic cancer being an inflammatory slash, you know, metabolic disease. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty hopeful. But if that works out, you know, we're going to have something that's over-the-counter, Potentially unbannable. I don't want to give FDA any ideas because they can ban whatever they want. But it's hard to ban pyruvate and it's hard to ban acetoacetate. I mean, these are natural metabolites inside of the body. So uh, they have to get really creative to ban it. Will be, it will be like banning glucose. You know, you cannot eat beyond a certain amount of glucose because it's a prescription drug. I mean, if we get it to that level, then you know civilization is finished. <laughs> if you cannot eat more than 50 grams of glucose because the FDA doesn't approve of it, then it then it's so, game over. So we'll see. I mean, that's so that's one study. Um, and then they've restarted the, the study with DHT in Taiwan because it was shut down because of the virus. Uh, so now it's being restarted. Unfortunately, it I you know paid for something and threw some money down the drain because after the study was paused, you cannot. Tell these animals to like wait, you know, and then restart. They have to be euthanized, and now oh, we're sure. starting from scratch. So we'll see what happens with that one. Yeah, but uh, so what else I'm working on? Um, oh, fatty acid oxidation inhibitor. So one has already been synthesized, uh, and there are publications on it. I can send them to you, and then you can post them on the page for people that want to. So it basically works the same way as the drug meldonium slash mildronate. It uh, depletes the levels of L-carnitine, which is the amino acid without which you cannot oxidize long-chain fatty acids. But it's about 20 times more potent than meldonium, um, and it, it's very effective in very low doses, and the effect lasts for several days. Um, but we, since this is already a molecule that's been um, synthesized, published about, we wanted to do something beyond that, so we're going to synthesize something completely new, our own thing, hopefully even more potent, at least the results based on the, uh, what we're seeing right now, 
will be able to do something that's about 100 to 200 times more potent than meldonium and without any of the side effects associated with these molecules. At least that's how it's being synthesized. We'll see what happens in the in vivo tests. But uh, long story short, in about a month, I will ha- I may have the first, uh, this, this already published fatty acid oxidation inhibitor. By the way, it was created by the same group that created meldonium. It's an interesting story. So if you look at, so the, the compound is called methyl GBB. If you Google for methyl dash G is in George, B is in boy, B is in boy, the studies will immediately come up. Um, and you'll see that the, the creator was one of the students of the professor who invented meldonium back in the 1960s in Latvia. So it's still a Latvian, uh, another Latvian created this molecule. I think it's kind of like a, so it was a bit of a competition. I guess he just wanted to one-up <laughs> his teacher and say, I can do better, right? Um, so um, it's it's a fairly benign molecule. It's basically, it's a it's an analog of L-carnitine. That's how it works. And and basically it blocks, it blocks that enzyme that synthesizes L-carnitine from the precursor uh, gamma-butyrobetaine. Um, and, uh, you know, the daily human, the equivalent daily human dosage uh, is about 100 milligrams. For meldonium is about gram to two grams to get the really serious, um, you know, um, carnitine depletion effects or, or many athletes use it as doping for the same reason, right? And this thing works, you know, at 100 milligrams daily. And more importantly, the effects even from one dosage extend for about two, three days. So we should be able to have that for sale in the next month or two. But I'm really, my goal is, this is just to give people a taste of what's coming. My goal is to have that other one that's much more potent and designed to not really have any of the known side effects of these chemicals to be available sometime in the fall. Um, and if that works, then, of course, we're going to do a study with it with cancer and, and everything else. But who knows? Maybe Pyroset will make this whole thing meaningless <laughs> if it turns out that it can cure cancer and I don't know. I don't know if we're, we're going to continue that approach. We probably will, just out of curiosity. But uh, uh, if it works, then I think that'll be that would be big news. Uh, like I said, they, that may finally get <laughs> shut down because I will try to publish that <laughs> in a reputable journal. Which, by the way, it's cost. I now realize why it costs ten thousand dollars to have a manuscript submitted to Nature. No, do you know that? Like ten thousand dollars doesn't mean it's going to get approved. Actually, it doesn't even guarantee that it's going to get read. You're paying ten grand just to submit something, and yes, usually they'll they'll review it, but you know there's very low chance of approval. So the vast majority, so nature makes a lot of money by telling people no, um, and just for the privilege of getting something submitted there. Now I'm not going to spend ten thousand dollars. I just don't have that money. But if we get a block blockbuster results like a pyroset or that other chemical. Curing one of the one of those cancers, I may start a Patreon or like you or like you know uh, see if the community is willing to chip in for a publication, not for synthesizing but for publication. So if we don't hear from you for in the next few months, you either got Reginald Dennied on the streets of Washington D.C. or you discovered the cure for cancer and you disappeared. <laughs> well, either way, it, it's, it does not look like bright future for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or I retired on a private island where three <laughs> extremely rich people and, and it's being kept under wraps. You can only tell by by seeing super yachts <laughs> going in a specific direction in the Pacific Ocean. Good stuff. At least we know that's the important thing. Okay, so idealabsdc.com. Check that out. Uh, t.me slash Danny Roddy. My telegram. Uh, my 
what is this called? Twitter uh, at Danny Roddy. Instagram, this is just for food stuff, you know, so uh, I've just been catalog- cataloging food for a long time on here that I've found in various places. So people are always like mystified by dietary things. And so these are just anti-inflammatory, anti-stress foods that I'm aware of in various places. And then I do coaching on dannyroddy.com slash resources, although I think it is sold out at the moment. Um, okay, so we should probably get to uh, the Super Chats, if unless you wanted to mention anything before sure. we there. I mean, I, I might as well start that because I'm yeah. sure you'll <laughs> will t- take some yeah. time to answer. I don't think we have that many. If you want to do a super chat, now is definitely the time. Thank you guys so much. You these support the show. You like the ability to do this, and so I sincerely appreciate it. Um, let me switch screens here. Um, okay, okay, uh, Mateo. Uh, I won't even try Weichers. I don't know how to say your last name. Uh, for 20 pesos, thank you so much, Mateo. He says, please talk about high serotonin after herpes virus. Uh, well, actually, I think the high serotonin is, is, is what's allowing the virus to actually manifest itself. It's largely dormant. The herpes virus usually lives in your um, nervous system, peripheral nervous system. Sometimes it can travel to the brain, and then it can, and if it gets reactivated there, it can create a very nasty thing called uh, herpetic mm-hmm. encephalitis, um, you know, high mortality rate, about 30%, but it's, it's rare, it tends to be rare, unless you're using arginine or a nitroglycerin or any kind of like a nitric oxide increasing supplement slash drugs because that's what reactivates the virus. But recent studies have found that serotonin is actually required for a viral infection to take hold. Now, some people will say, well, hold on, you're already, you're already carrying the herpes virus. Yes, but it's dormant. It's living in your nervous system in order for it to start to get to flood the bloodstream and actually start you know multiple getting into the cells and you know causing the cell to produce more virus so it can go and infect others in order to actually trigger an active viral infection serotonin is required and there are multiple studies showing that serotonin antagonists can block uh, uh, either prevent fully prevent a viral infection from happening or stop an already progressing one in its tracks including ones with herpes virus so I don't think serotonin is elevated, is elevated only after the herpes virus. I think, I think that's when the tests were done and people thought, oh, maybe herpes is causing the serotonin to elevate, which is true. It's true. They actually have a positive feedback mechanism. Any kind of a stress reaction in your organism will tend to increase serotonin. But serotonin and nitric oxide always go together. So if you have an active herpes infection, usually means nitric oxide was was elevated. And I don't know of a case where nitric oxide can get elevated without serotonin also getting elevated because nitric oxide stimulates the activity of tryptophan hydroxylase. So if your if your herpes virus got, got reactivated, it means NO was high, which also means serotonin was also high before herpes, you know, be, uh, you, you even had the herpes outbreak. Good stuff. Thank you for that, Mateo. Uh, Daniel Gallagher says, uh, for $5, thank you so much, Daniel. He says, Georgie, what would you take to protect yourself from vaccines? Uh, Heard you and Ray uh, slightly discuss this. Any long-term repercussions from vaccines? Uh, There are many. I mean, I think if you listen to that portion of the episode, he basically said that the adjuvants and just the, the immune response in a weakened person can actually create long-term uh, subsequent waves to use this, right? Um, 
and basically it's it, it can also be transgenerational but it's really the inflammatory reaction that's the worst that's the worst thing and and that's what can can cause systemic issues aside from the aluminum that gets deposited in your bones and your brain um, it's not that big of an amount that portion that part can probably get chelated by things like uh, succinic acid um, you know uh, malic acid which is available which is present in apple and I pear and I think even grape juice um, so aside from the aluminum adjuvant, it's handling the the systemic inflammatory reaction, which is which is what the vi- the vaccine is really. That's the goal of the vaccine to trigger this immune response and to make your immune system be familiar with the weakened pathogen. That's that's crap. Um, basically, it's that that activation of the immune system, especially if you're already in a compromised uh, state of health, that actually can trigger. Um, like a, the cytokine storm, and and that lead that can lead to death. So you can get COVID nineteen. Well, the the SARS. I mean, that basically the secure severe acute respiratory syndrome. Even without COVID nineteen, one of these vaccines can do that if you if you, if it's administered to you when you're in a metabolically weakened state. So systemically anti-inflammatory chemicals are likely to be universally helpful. Aspirin is probably a great one. I think pregnenolone. I'm starting to recognize more and more pregnenolone's role as a very, very powerful, very upstream anti-inflammatory um, steroid, and and um, you know the many people know about the original studies with it with rheumatoid arthritis back in like the 40s and 50s, and they said that the reason it got dropped was because cortisol was much more effective. Yes, but if you look at the way cortisol worked, it was by suppressing the immune system, and pregnenolone works through a different method. And basically, it it uh, restrains your uh, it protects you from from the from endotoxin exposure, and also modulates the immune response in such a way that it doesn't suppress it. You, it does not make you less. Uh, it does not make you more susceptible to infection. In fact, it increases the immune response to bacterial and fungal pathogens, while at the same time dampening dampening down excessive inflammatory response. So I think pregnenolone will be great. As a as a protective measure, both before and after receiving the vaccine. Uh, obviously, I would you know I would much rather prefer to take it before the vaccine, at least an hour or so, if possible, for several days before getting the vaccine. Um, I think uh, getting like a, a, uh, keeping the uh, free fatty acids low is also very important because for the majority of us, because of the accumulation of PUFA, many of these uh, fatty acids circulating in the blood will be PUFA, right? So they'll be contributing to the inflammatory, to the inflammation response and the shock reaction and the stress reaction. So either taking niacinamide, um, you know, you know, drinking something sweet, orange juice will probably be great. Um, or basically uh, like eating like a decent, uh, maybe like two spoons of coconut oil. Because all if the, the, the goal is to get the, the ratio of saturated fats to unsaturated fats in your blood as high as possible. Um, you know, before, during, and after the vaccine for the first 24 to 48 hours. So taking, you know, two spoons of coconut oil about an hour before is probably great. Um, and, but, you know, many people are, you know, when they're about to get the vaccine, there are other things in their mind they tend to forget. So if there are simple things you need to remember is drink something sweet, right, um, and or take aspirin, preferably both. Those two are probably the simplest, most systemically protective things you can do. And if you remember... Pregnenolone would work. Progesterone would work. Uh, I think methylene blue would be a great one too. A recent study found that methylene blue has the highest 
the, the broadest spectrum of anti-inflammatory activity than anything else that that study looked at. And I thought, we haven't checked aspirin, and indeed they hadn't. But they compared it to a number of different pharmaco- uh, pharmaceutical drugs like un- indomethacin, um, you know, disulfiram, many different um, um, uh, to- many different anti than all of them. So methylene blue would probably be helpful in, such, in, in this situation as well. Oops. Hey, are you still there? Are you are you still? Yeah. Can uh, you hear me? Yeah, I think we got a, we had a hiccup, and so um, I think we're yeah. I think we're still we're still good. Um, you guys are still with us in the chat. Yeah, I think we're we're good. We had just a slight internet connection. You're you're there, right? Yeah, that was weird because it it actually dropped the connection mm-hmm. and redial without me doing anything. Okay. Yeah. It says. Um, yeah, I think it. it I, I, I was telling Georgie this before we started, but I, even though I'm plugged in via Ethernet, it was giving me periodic dr- dropouts. I have no idea why. And so, um, so yeah, I think we're good. Okay, sorry, it, it, sorry to interrupt your train of thought, but do you remember where you're going? Yeah, I was saying, like, <laughs> you know, methylene blue would be a great anti-inflammatory in addition to aspirin. Uh, but if you have to remember, if most people have access to aspirin and sweet stuff, you know, even if they're under stress and like, you know, their mind is occupied with other things. So, so if if you can if you cannot do anything else, orange juice and aspirin before the vaccine, and then for a you know you know for the first few days after that, that is probably uh you know a, the best you can do with with things that are over the counter. Anything else, such as cyproheptadine, of course, you know, any anti-serotonin, and any and anything that reduces the synthesis of nitric oxide or scavengers, such as methylene blue, which is probably one of the reasons why it has these anti-inflammatory effects. Anything like that would help. It's just a matter of what you have access to be immediately before and after getting that vaccine. Uh, truth be told, if it gets to the point of COVID-19 vaccine, co- coronavirus being mandatory, just like Ray, I think I'm going to pack up and leave because... Uh, with the sophistication of technology that that has occurred over the last ten years, there is no telling what would be inside that vaccine. And for most people, even advanced labs around the world, it will be near impossible to even to even test and verify what's in there. Nanotechnology is at the point where the military can probably inject you with, I don't know, a chip or something else that can, you know, emit waves, be like a like a transceiver receiver. And you know, be this nano robot floating in, you know, around inside of your body for 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 as long as you're alive, and you would never know it. You'll be undetectable to most modern technology. That's how advanced things have gotten into the military slash intelligence world. So if it gets to a being getting forcefully injected with a modern vaccine that is that has been so politicized and pushed by people like Bill Gates and everybody else that's has a hidden interest in in pushing these things, I w- I would just say no and leave. Yeah, so we can move on. But uh, somebody I was listening to was like, what hill are you going to die on? Is it the mask hill? Not not wearing the mask. Is it social distancing? And even though we don't really know what's going to happen, if you somehow I mean, there have to be there has to be some way not to take it. You know, like what 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 kind of life are those people going to be subject to if they do not take the vaccine? Like, is it even plausible to to live, you know, like what kind of access will they be cut off to? Um, but, um, but I think the good news is that about we're underestimating the percentage of people in the United States who are actually actively mistrusting the vaccines at this point. Mm-hmm. There was an article that came out recently that said that some people are horrified, some people in the government, meaning at CDC, are horrified that apparently up to 30% of Americans are seriously questioning 
whether they're going to get any other vaccine aside from the ones that they've already gotten. So, you, I mean, that may be the reason why this will never become mandatory. It's like a significant minority population will say, go screw yourself, I'm not doing well, it. Well, the point I'm getting at is, like, you have to choose – it's hard to say this without the vaccine actually being out, but, like, you have to make a choice on the hill you're going to die on, you know? And right. and for me, it's not – I don't care about necessarily wearing a mask, even though I prefer not to wear one. But, I, like, I would like to say no matter what, I will not get a vaccine. But I guess, I guess we'll see how – bad it is um when they actually come out with something i mean i don't want to tempt fate but i don't know of a single person around me who who basically got the coronavirus and had complications even though i'm sure many did because there there are these things now they call them covid toes mm-hmm. i don't know if, you, if mm-hmm. you've seen this covid mm-hmm. toes or covid fingers mm-hmm. you've the tips of your fingers and, or and or your toes become like bright red mm-hmm. it's almost like you've dipped them into red ink and I, I noticed people around me have been getting this for like months, right? And then it disappears. So I'm presuming majority of people around me, some of them in compromised health state, got the, the coronavirus and it was never it was never an issue. So <laughs> hello. <laughs> There's Cher. <laughs> She's probably uh uh wanting to go get some street food. <laughs> Keep <Okay>. going. <laughs> so, uh, yes, fried in coconut oil or like soy oil? Man, this is a big contentious point of our relationship. She, uh, I, I was trying to tell her that like o- old traditional Thai like only use coconut oil, but like right. everything she eats is just like slathered in polyunsaturated fats. And so, uh, it, it's yeah, right. it's a... So, Remember so, what I told you? My, <laughs> my grandmother, rest in peace, she said, in a relationship, you can be right or you can be happy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good piece of advice. Um, yeah. yeah, man. Okay, good stuff. We could probably talk about that all day. Okay, so this one's from Elliot Cactus for seven ninety nine Australian. Thank you so much, Elliot. He says, any foods slash supplements worth consuming or avoiding when using psychedelics, e.g. LSD, uh, psilocybin, mescaline, at moderate to high doses? Yeah, uh, because some of them tend to act on the serotonin system. I would uh, try to avoid things that could potentially trigger a serotonin syndrome. So I would not use methylene blue with anything psychotropic because um, it is a known inhibitor of monoamine oxidase type A um, and in high doses um, on its own is known to trigger serotonin syndrome, but it, it usually, when it's used on its own, it requires dosages such as used in a hospital to revive people from shock. That's like three to 500, five, three to 100 to 500 milligrams intravenously and as, as a single dose. But also, methylene blue has been known at lower dosages to also trigger serotonin syndrome when co-administered with other things that have that effect of either promoting synthesis of serotonin or inhibiting its degradation. So methylene blue and SSRI, a big no-no. Methylene blue and, and you know, basically um, things that uh, like a high, high tryptophan food, I would, I would not do that. So again, because we don't know many of these, the, the psychotropic, the hallucinogenic drugs or, or like the natural supplements that do that, like the psilocybin, DMT, um, et cetera, they do act on a, on a portion of the serotonin system and I would not risk, I mean, I don't know of any, of any study that says that, that methylene blue will be dangerous when taken with them, but just because they act on the same system, I would not risk it. Um, I think also eating high, Tyramin foods is also not a good idea. So like aged cheeses, chocolate, um, you know, wines, especially wines with a lot of um, like um, um, uh, uh, what I call like uh, 
not sulfites, but they use them to to sterilize the wine, to preserve it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So especially white wines tend to have them a lot, but uh, you can actually look at the wine. The label usually says if it has like uh, preservatives, they'll say artificial or natural preservatives. And some wines don't have it on the label. The ones that do, I'll try to avoid. So in general, anything that would tend to increase the sense of serotonin or inhibit its degradation, I would avoid with hallucinergics. Um, worst case scenario, I mean, if you if you're really concerned, you can take that those hallucinergics with a low dosage of cyproheptadine, not too high because it's going to kill the trip. So we that's how we know the serotonin system is involved. But about a milligram to two milligrams have been shown to to not stop the trip, but also prevent the development of serotonin syndrome. That has been done in humans too. So you can try that as a precautionary mechanism. But in general, yeah, those would be the foods that I would avoid, and I would avoid metal in blue. Um, and um, let's see, there was a uh, yeah, there is there is actually some evidence that coenzyme Q10 can also in, um, in, in interact with the monoamine oxidase system, but it tends to inhibit monoamine oxidase type B more than it does A. Nonetheless, you know, if you're taking grams of CoQ10 to treat Parkinson's disease or you know some other condition then I would also be careful with the hallucinergics. Good stuff. We're definitely going to have to work on that D-Live alternate. <laughs> we're talking about illicit drug use. We're talking about anti-vaccines. We're talking about conspiracy. Inciting people to do that. <laughs> conspiracy theories. What exactly are <laughs> you selling in that D-Live? What, what's the cold word for, for vitamin K? Oh, you mean special K. That's what you're talking about. Good stuff. Thank you so much uh, for that question, Elliot. Uh, Joe Smith for um, $10, I think Canadian. He says, when I use topical caffeine like Solban on my scalp, I notice new hair growth with, within days. Um, but I also get a, uh, a dry mouth and a pale tongue. Same with too much vitamin B7 or vitamin E. What, uh, what do you use to top uh, dash calf? I don't understand that. Uh, top calf without dry mouth. Well, a dry mouth is typically a, a symptom of, of anticholinergic activity, and caffeine is a known anticholinergic. Um, it blocks a number of different acetylcholine receptors. It's not as strong as cyproheptadine or Benadryl. Uh, those things will definitely give you dry mouth. In fact, that they used for excessive sweating. Um, but, uh, caffeine, you know, because you're applying it directly on the scalp and it's absorbs very well there, it's likely to affect anything in the head a lot more than it will do like peripherally. Um, so, um, I mean, let's see, uh, you can try taking a little bit of vitamin B1 with it or take the B1 orally and, uh, maybe about 30 minutes before you apply the caffeine and vitamin B1 has a slight cholinergic activity, not enough to be dangerous, as we know the overactivation of the cholinergic system is um, leads to depression, uh, but it's also the, one of the two primary systems through which estrogen works, the other one being histamine. So, uh, so a little bit of vitamin B1 before using the caffeine would work. Uh, and also, I mean, I don't know if you saw my recent post on uh, using uh, an anti-estrogens uh, topically for hair growth. That would be another thing to consider. Uh, so things like a topical progesterone or topical aspirin, caffeine also has an estrogenic effect, but uh, a more direct anti-estrogen or maybe even like, a, you know, mushroom 
uh, mushroom extract being applied on the scalp. That would be, a, you know, probably a good thing that I don't think it, it, it because it's not known to cause any of these side effects that you mentioned for caffeine. Yeah, did it Ray, Ray um, mention Silly Marin? Uh, that's not mushroom, but Silly Marin, like topical? Yeah, Silly yeah, Marin yeah. is, uh, is a milk thistle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so basically, it's the active ingredient in milk thistle. So you can try that too. Um, and none of these are, I think, are known to cause these, uh, like the, the, the dry, the dry mouth or the, or the pale tongue. So, um, so, uh, you, oh, you can use a lower amount of caffeine combined with these other things to get the same effect by using less of each, but I, I wouldn't know what the ratios would be. Thank you for that, Georgie. Thank you, uh, Joe Smith. For uh, Thank you so much. Uh, Kirk333, thank you so much, Kirk, a chronic supporter of the show. A lot of these Super Chats are. Thank you, guys. For $5, he says, for both of you, if there were one thing you could change about your health, what would it be, and how would you approach changing it? Well, actually, it's very simple but very hard to do. I, I would limit stress that's hard. I mean, for me, it's impossible to avoid, you know, having a day job, working in this environment and having a side job and a family, none of these things really are subject to much change. Let Children don't tolerate, you can't pivot around your family. You just can't. If you care about the family, if you don't care about your family, then I guess you can, but then you're already in a compromised state of health if you're in that mindset, right? So there, there are things that 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 uh, it's very hard for me to avoid. I do what I can, but it's it's juggling. And ideally, I would like to, you know, basically be able to drop things for for uh, let's say two weeks, and and not worry about any of those things on a daily basis. It's really I can I can appreciate how detrimental to my health that is because every once in a while I go out of town for a few days, even if it's work related. I'm basically not bothered by any of these things for a few days. And it, it, the moment I come back, I realize just how stressful that environment I came out of was. And it's really, it's really depressing, actually, because I know I have to go back and I really don't want to. Um, so to me, the systemic stress is probably the, the fundamental factor behind all disease. Um, and, you know, if I could change that, I would, I would because to me it beats – Anything, any other patchwork that we're doing with with supplements, including thyroid. So diet is probably the only other very systemic thing that. But I already have that more or less taken care of. But the stress of interacting with others, and especially in this environment, like you said, I'm in the middle of riots, and things are. You can feel the agitation of the people around you. And as we've discussed before, brain waves. People actually directly they can synchronize their brain waves. So if you're among and around agitated people all the time who are mentally ill, depressed, angry, raging, and so on and so on, it's very hard to keep a you know a healthy state of mind. Yeah, my immediate thought to this question is like, oh, I wish I had a new body. <laughs> you know, like I, that's how I feel given my various health struggles over many years. But I, I'm not trying to cop out to this question, but I also would have learned like literally nothing had I not had those struggles. And so it's like kind of a catch 22. And uh, and I wouldn't have gone on a path of like j just this uh, gradual development over time. And also my life is completely guided by me. And so I and I, so and, and anything that happens, it's really just blaming myself. I have no I have no outside source to blame um given my my uh specific circumstances 
And so I'm like you. Yeah, like like this Thailand is not a place I would recommend coming to like be healthy. But I came here. You know, if I could take some qualities of Thailand and import or export them to Mexico, like that would be ideal. Um, and Mexico is a great place. But I was just a little bit. Uh, I don't think lonely is the right word. There's just like not a lot of novelty there. And for me, that was kind of draining over time. And so I would wake up, answer email, like watch YouTube, answer more email, do some kind of project and then go go to bed. So it was just kind of uh, boring. Well, I tell you that I wasn't seeing any beautiful girls walking around (laughs) your room when you're in Mexico. And I do see them now. So you you have improved your life. I have improved my life by 1%. So, um, yeah, so I, I it's it's uh interesting question for sure, but but yeah, I just ne- never would have gone gotten to Ray without being sick, never would have started this podcast and and things like that. So I don't reg- I'm trying to say I don't like regret anything or wish something was specifically different because if if I were to do that, I would be like negating my the development of my present self, you know? So, yeah. So, if I can rephrase, I wish I was more in your situation. <laughs> in other words, for things to depend on me, because right now I feel like there are many things that don't depend on me, and I'm, and I'm trying every day to wring control back in, into my own hands. And and I, total control is probably like a utopia, but I, I definitely want it to be more than what it is right now. It's just it's very. It's like if you know what's wrong and you know how you can change it, but you're not being allowed to. That's a very uh, annoying state of mind to be in. So you either you either you either you will give you a neurosis or you're gonna start ignoring it, <laughs> which neither one of these is really a good solution. That's why you take your family, you move to Mexico, and we set up an orange juice stand and all. Of- uh, we- <laughs> Go ahead. Blake College. Yeah. We, 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 we will. We will restore Blake College, and then U.S. will invade Mexico, and they'll be the end of it. Good stuff. Good question. I enjoy questions like those, so thank you, Kirk. Uh, our buddy Drew F. for $10, he says, Georgie, I have seen you mention that a higher ratio of progesterone to DHA has different effects from a lower ratio. How so, and how does a higher ratio affect libido? Uh, furthermore, can progesterone DHA fully replace pregnenolone? The, I'll answer the second question first. Yes. Because I've actually seen that progesterone administration can raise levels of pregnenolone because both progesterone and DHEA do not inhibit their own synthesis and actually stimulate their own synthesis and of the of the steroid, the precursor to them, which is pregnenolone. Now, DHEA, if you abuse it, it will actually lead to suppression because you'll convert to estrogen and estrogen is highly suppressive. Um, the reason I think uh, and I've found through experiments um, based on studies that, that gave me the original idea is that if you look at older studies, I can send them to the people who are interested, lower levels of progesterone were actually suppressive for the gonadal axis, but higher ones had the opposite effect. So in other words, so and then I experimentally found that this ratio is about the maximum we can get away with before progesterone starts to overtake DHA and become too sed- sedating is about 6 to 1 to 8 to 1. Anything lower than that does seem a, does have a very potent anti-catabolic effect, but it, it doesn't have a very strong pro-libido effect. In a ratio of 6 to 1 to about 8 to 1, you're getting a very strong pro-libido effect, and I don't think it's coming from the progesterone DHEA because you can tell by a change in your scrotum. It's it Basically, it's it, it, the, the size of the gonads increases, 
and you can you can there you can tell that there's there's more synthesis endogenously of testosterone or whatever androgens the conats are producing. Uh, so that's 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 my experimentation and based on the studies. But if you do more than eight to one, um, then it starts to become too sedating and actually it overtakes the effects of DHEA and you start getting the some of the effects of pure progesterone, which is numbing of the penis. Um, you know, basically sometimes even loss of libido, but definitely heavy sedation and very deep sleep without even dreaming, which to me is a usually, I mean, I know how GABA agonists are supposed to work and that's, that's one of the effects of them. So anything more than that, the, 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 because DHA we're limiting, assuming we're limiting the dosage to more than, more, no more than five milligrams per dose, no more than three times that five milligram dosage per day. If you are limiting yourself to that, then eventually a ratio of higher than eight to one progesterone will overtake the effects of DHEA. But between six to one and eight to one seems to be optimal for libido slash mental health slash muscles. Interestingly, the lower ratio, three to one, seems to be more anti-catabolic. The muscles seem more uh, they they more defined and more uh, more full, but not as good effects on libido as the six to one to eight to one ratio. Great stuff. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you, Drew. Uh, Jaeger ODA for 199 says opinion on BPC-157 and TB-500. I don't know what those are. I think the first one is a peptide and the second one is a SARM. Mm -hmm. I thought he he already emailed me about it, um, if that's the same person. I I don't like the the SARMs. The SARMs, keep in mind, not a single one of them has has been approved for, for, uh, for any condition anywhere in the world. And there are quite a few of them. Um, there, there been, there, there's been a race in the pharmaceutical industry to replace steroids with like these uh, non-steroidal, fully synthetic molecules that bind to the same receptors and you know presumably have the same effects without the side effects. So they created the SARMs, the Selective Androgen Receptor Modulators. They were supposed to be similar to the SERMs, the Selective Estrogen Receptor Modulators. Uh, but just like the SERMs from the, ver- the very beginning, excuse me, the SARMs were plagued by by issues and especially toxicity and as much as they try to avoid it uh, but actually you can tell by the molecule most of the SARMs contain either fluorine or chlorine in the molecule if you do that you expect automatically liver issues and and virtually all of them have, have liver toxicity as a side effect so that's one reason I don't like the SARMs I don't think and the fact that no health agency around the world has considered approving even one of them Considering that they're they've been around for at least two decades, speaks to me that uh, they're probably not not even less safe than even the corrupt pharmaceutical industry would like to accept it. Um, as far as the as far as the peptides, um, I think they're okay, but uh, most of them have to be administered by injection. So you know you it depends on really on the quality that 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 that, that you can get. Um, you know many times uh, many of these these peptide products they're done in underground labs and. Uh, they have a number of different adjuvants that are in the liquid that people would not admit to, but they're preservatives, and many of them are, are not good. Many of them are toxic. Uh, the polysorbate, um, 60, 70, and 80, that is the most, one, of the, one of the most widely used preservatives. Uh, it's actually in, in most commercial foods like Burger King, McDonald's. It is a known carcinogen. Uh, and in fact, it's been shown that when it's administered intravenously, the carcinogenic effect is amplified because it, uh, apparently... I guess because it goes directly into the bloodstream. So some of it gets destroyed when you're eating it. So orally, it's not as bad, still bad, still carcinogenic, but it takes decades. Intravenously, 
you know, you can probably, uh, you know, play in Russian roulette there with with an injection of a peptide. Um, I would stick to the steroids. I mean, uh, it's there, there are plenty of steroids out there that are, you know, you can you can do a decent stack if you can get a doctor to prescribe dihydrotestosterone, and then you can you know combine it with something like DHA and pregnenolone or DHA and progesterone. You can get all the effects of the androgenic anabolic steroids. Um, while also getting, you know, um, you know, without many of the side effects, because these are endogenous steroids, and if used appropriately, um, you know, you can, you can, uh, you can get all the benefits with, without most of the side effects. Thank you for that, uh, Georgie, and thank you, Jaeger, for that. Uh, okay, a few more. Uh, Gregory, for 1999. Thank you so much, Gregory. Uh, hi, my younger brother seemed to develop some type of autism. Throughout uh, puberty until now at age 21. Um, any suggestions on how to combat this? I was thinking ciproheptadine slash antibiotics. Should I start with antibiotics yeah. first and then ciproheptadine? I would actually try the charcoal first before you go even in, into that. Um, I've had a number of clients report remarkable improvement in their children's um, uh, uh, symptoms of autism just by giving them a capsule of charcoal. Um, now, I don't know how severe your brother's uh, symptoms were uh, clearly if it's something that's basically uh, got him to the point you can actually tell um, if you have if he if he has frequent nightmares that's a great uh, very reliable sign of elevated serotonin because the body combats the elevated not combats but like balances the elevated serotonin by increasing by shifting its the synthesis of melatonin which is downstream of serotonin so if you take a serotonergic drug um, or do anything that raises your serotonin before going to bed you will usually have nightmares because by because melatonin is a downstream hormone and the body knows that serotonin high level serotonin are not good so you'll try to like you know um, I guess do the lesser evils of the two and shift the balance towards melatonin right so if he has nightmares that's usually a you know a good indication of elevated serotonin um, so if that if he has that on a regular basis then you may want to try the cyproheptadine and the and the antibiotics but I would try to charcoal first. And actually, charcoal mixed with coconut oil or palmitic or stearic acid. Uh, there, the palmitic one is already present in coconut oil, not not in very high quantities, but the, you know, close enough. But the coconut oil contains lauric acid and myristic acid. Both of these are potent antibacterials. And um, I think Ray recommended to somebody a long time ago with severe gut dysbiosis. Um, they, you know, they said that both the coconut oil helped and the charcoal helped separately. And everybody said, well, you should combine them because, uh, like, the, basically, coconut oil is a strong enough antibacterial to act as an antibiotic if there's if there was a way to deliver it directly into the intestine. But the the reason it's so because it's so well absorbed and digested, not much of it, if anything, actually gets to the colon, so it loses its disinfectant effects. So enema with coconut oil will be great. But if you don't want to do that, actually taking the coconut oil with the charcoal, because the charcoal the, would absorb to like a significant portion of the free fa of the fatty acids in the coconut oil, and you'll prevent them from absorbing, and you'll carry them to the colon. And over there, both the coconut oils and the charcoal will have a strong antibacterial effect, and you may actually do better than antibiotics. I mean, I've tried it myself. I think it's a, I wouldn't say it's as po as potent as something like uh, minocycline. But it's, I would say it's about 70%, uh, you know, there. Um, and without the risks of, of, of minocycline, such as, you know, all antibiotics increase the risk of fungal overgrowth if you use them chronically. So 
if you can get that the charcoal and the coconut oil to work i would i would stick with that i mean there's no reason why not why not you know not to use this on we don't use daily because charcoal even if it's use it to bind with the coconut oil there's still enough of it free to absorb other nutrients and potentially create vitamin deficiency if you're using it every day but like three to four times weekly should be okay and without risk of creating deficiencies. And if that doesn't work, then the antibiotic, the cyproheptadine and Benadryl, and uh, actually even even uh, because the, the serotonin receptor, uh, the most highly expressed one in the gastrointestinal tract is the 5-HT3, um, you may actually get a, a better effect with a, either pure on Dancitron or one of the other 5-HT3 antagonists or a combination of the cyproheptadine and the ondansetron because even though cyproheptadine is a non-specific serotonin antagonist, its activity on 5-HT3, which is mostly expressed in the in the GI tract and is such very relevant for autism, it's not very strong. So I've actually, um, I've seen studies shown that ondansetron by itself as animal studies a very potent uh, re- a reversal effect on autism symptoms. So we can try that in combination with cyproheptadine or on its own. Uh, keep in mind that doses higher than 4 milligrams are not recommended, both because it can prolong the QT interval, um, which is this, create, it can create, it's a type of heart rhythm disorder, um, but also because I think, and Ray confirmed that when I asked him directly in an email about a year ago, um, in animal studies, the antidepressant effect, which suggests that, you know, since it's coming most likely by opposing serotonin, the antidepressant effect was seen only in doses equivalent up to three milligrams daily for a human. Anything higher than that started to affect badly digestion and did not have the positive effects on mood, on, on reducing inflammation, on reducing autistic symptoms, etc. So if you are using ondansetron, I would say one to two milligrams daily is, is probably the top, the most that I would use. And it happens to be the dosage that Ray has recommended to people in past. Good stuff. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you, Gregory. Uh, our buddy, uh, L.A.Z., longtime uh, listener, supporter of the show, watcher. Thank you, Ellie. He says, are, the, uh, are there dangers to paper bag breathing? It healed my friend's migraine. Any recommendations on how to regularly, regularly, um, can't see this. Regularly do them for general health. Good night. <laughs> yeah. So the only dangers that I would that that I've that I can that I've seen actually, and they published studies on that with these um, let's call them breathing modification devices, is that if the bag is uh, is too small and it's it's making you breathing strain. In other words, you have to force, you have to make a physical exertion to breathe in and out of it. That's a problem because that strain creates an inflammatory reaction in the lungs and immediately releases nitric oxide and the serotonin, which, by the way, is destroyed in the lungs. It's carried back with the blood from the, from the bloodstream to the lungs, and that's why it's destroyed oxidatively. So if you're straining your lungs or irritating your lungs in any way, you will be creating a systemic inflammatory and serotonergic reaction. So if the breathing in that bag is strained, not not feeling that you're not that basically you you're lacking oxygen, which means that CO2 is building up. But if you actually have to push to either inhale or exhale, that's that's a bad sign. I would try to use a different bag. Uh, another device that seems to work very well is if you can find a plastic bottle that is at least uh, two liters, preferably a gallon in size. So you cut a hole in the in the bottle uh, in the bottom of the bottle. And then you open, you basically open like the top of the bottle and then you turn around and you start breathing through it, right? 
So the 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 air will keep coming in and out, in and out. But because over time the ca carbon dioxide will accumulate, it's heavier than air, and it will actually stay in the bottle. So you will not get as as much as hell. So over time you'll get this mini tank of carbon dioxide that will basically like we can breathe through it, and you will feel like you're breathing, you're breathing through the through a paper bag. But it's actually I found it's actually it's actually easier. It I mean, it, and I, I felt like I was getting more carbon dioxide that way. More importantly, when you're done breathing, you just close the top of the bottle, right? Make sure, and then you can tilt it down, uh, with the with the neck pointing downwards. The carbon dioxide will stay in the bottle. So next time when you're actually ready to do that, you just put it sideways again, open the bottle, and start breathing again. The carbon dioxide will already be there. With the paper bag and any other bag, you actually have to breathe, depending on how much carbon dioxide you produce, you may have to breathe uh, for a while before you get to a point where you're getting a decent amount of carbon dioxide. But this way, you can actually have a, you know, uh, like a pre-made tank, and it will sit there, and it doesn't have to be closed as long as the opening is is over the carbon dioxide and doesn't allow it to like uh, to escape. Great stuff. Thank you for that. Uh, okay, and thank you, Ellie, for that question. Uh, Roots K nine for four ninety nine. Thank you so much, Roots. They say, what can I do to decrease inflammation in the small intestine? Uh, well, it depends what's driving it. If it's a bacterial overgrowth, then I think it's, you know, it, uh, it may be worth considering something like increasing the acidity, which is most, most cases of small bacterial, uh, small intestine bacterial overgrowth are due to insufficient production of gastric acid. So things that would increase the production of gastric acid is increasing the levels of carbon dioxide. They're actually intimately connected. Uh, they, they're almost perfectly correlated. Um, you know, salt deficiency can cause reduction in gastric acid. So eating enough table salt, chloride is needed for that production. Um, taking thiamine, the hydrochloride salt, also helps increase that. Anything that restores the proper production of carbon dioxide and the stomach acid tends to, um, you know, take care of the, of the, of the SIBO. Whether it's going to be permanent or not depends on whether you restore metabolism or not because ultimately – that lack of carbon dioxide, which manifests in a lack of gastric acid, is driven by low metabolism. But the immediate things that you can do to, to remediate that would be to increase the production of gastric acid, and those are, those are some of the uh, interventions that you can do. Um, other things that I've found to help is some uh, adding, like trying to eat some extra vinegar. Unfortunately, if you have like an ulcer um, or, or any kind of like a, you know, irritation of the esophagus, eating extra vinegar can be problematic there. But if, if that's not the issue, then, you know, you can, you know, usually increasing vinegar um, in your food is fine. I think that's one of the reasons actually Ray may be recommending the carousel with vinegar because, uh, you know, vinegar doesn't do anything to help carry the carrot, uh, you know, through the intestine. It can do it on its own. But the vinegar actually helps with uh, sterilizing the, the small intestine. Um, and the carrot is keeping the vinegar from getting absorbed and metabolized in the stomach. Mm -hmm. So you can actually... You know, the the carrot plays the role of the charcoal, as I explained in a previous example with the coconut oil. The you know here that it's the carrot that plays that role of absorbent and carries the vinegar to the small intestine, so you can sterilize it. Great stuff, uh, uh, Shailene or Shalin, Shailene Butterworth, four ninety nine. Uh, she says our family continues to learn so much from you too. Thank you for sharing our knowledge. We appreciate you both. Uh, thank you for that. Sincerely appreciate it. Uh, Thank June. you. Uh, Linda Bell for $2. No message. Thank you so much, Linda. Appreciate it. 
uh, Michael for $20. Well, my, uh, thank you, Michael. He's, uh, he says, thank you, Danny and Georgie. Thank you, Michael. Sincerely appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Oren uh, Frazier, uh, uh, I don't know, <laughs> Five for $5 says, best idea labs uh, for post-heart attack. Oh, let's see. Well, it really depends on the damage and what condition the heart was in before that. I mean, if it was just a heart attack that was driven by a blood clot, um, instead of basically the heart already being fibrotic, and, you know, you can get a heart attack from a clot, you can get a heart attack from the heart already starting to fail, from like, a, you know, um, in the initial stages of heart failure. So if there's any kind of fibrosis, I would say anything that opposes serotonin would be good. Uh, vitamin K seems to be getting a lot of recent attention uh, in regards to health of the cardiovascular system. And it's, it has a known antifibrotic effect and a known soft tissue decalcifying effect. Um, but usually if there is a heart attack, I would, I would check the hormonal balance because without an exception, people that have, that have had heart attacks and had their hormones tested had elevated estradiol. Um, and more often than not, also had elevated cortisol. So, you know, if this is a situation where it was, was driven by, you know, basically the increase in cat catabolic hormones uh, like these two, then uh, something like, I don't know, progesterone and N or DHEA to restore the balance. It depends. He didn't say if it was like a male or female, right? But either way, I would, I would try to check the steroids and vitamin D and cholesterol and see if there is a hormonal imbalance. More often than not, there is. Um, and then depending on how severe the the, uh, the estrogen excess is, because like I said, every single time that person has heart attack has been tested, estrogen was high. Either if it's a female, then I think high dose pure progesterone would probably be one of the best things. Um, and then if it's a male, then I would try like a progesterone DHEA. Probably it would be safer to do the, the 8 to 1 ratio that we have, which we call Corninone Plus. Uh, and then vitamin D, um, there is a there is a study in the in the early 80s that actually uh, showed that every single person whose vitamin D levels were above 45 survived a heart attack, um, no matter how severe it was. So I, I think that goes long way of you know demonstrating how important vitamin D is for uh, at least post heart attack state. And I think it's important for preventing it as well because as many people know, vitamin D is a steroid. And it's known to activate the progesterone and androgen receptors while simultaneously decreasing the activity or the, the effectiveness of estrogen and cortisol binding to their own receptors and working there. So it's like a, you're getting like a combination of a testosterone and progesterone uh, simultaneously with an anti-cortisol and, and like an anti-estrogen. So it's a really very versatile steroid and the, we need to start calling it more like, a, you know, the, the steroid colicalciferol. Like, no, no more vitamin D. <laughs> Good stuff. Thank you for that, Oren. Um, YouTube does. Okay, let me zoom in. Okay, Janet, for $20. Thank you so much, Janet. Long time supporter of the show. Uh, same with Oren and same with a lot of these people. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, Janet says, thank you, Georgie. I found your post on RP Forum on nerve pain. Had shingles recently and couldn't control... Uh, control the nerve pain this week. Uh, found the post you said... Niacin amide slash lysine, which I just ordered, and the niacin amide helped. Yeah. So maybe riff on that a little bit. Uh, oh, yes, I mean, uh, I think the the reason niacin amide helps is by you know improving the the uh, the redox state, right, um, and the, improving the energetic balance because nerve pain 
is shown to be an energetic problem. And the lysine, I'm probably mentioning the context of opposing arginine, um, because sometimes the you know nerve pain can be driven by reactivation of the herpes virus. Uh, but more recent studies, um, this, this is a very old post. <laughs> I, I think it's like from circa 2015. <laughs> I don't know why people find these posts. I mean, I, I barely remember them myself. <laughs> but more recent ones have shown that GABA agonists are pretty good. There's even a drug approved for uh, for nerve pain called Lyrica. Uh, it's basically the chemical, the generic name is pregabalin. It's basically a GABA agonist. So progesterone should be great for nerve pain and is known, in fact, to help with many different neuropathies and nerve pain conditions. Um, and another recent study found that nerve pain is often driven by insulin resistance, which is just uh, the medical name for elevated free fatty acids and insufficient metabolism of glucose, for which niacinamide should help, and it works greatly when combined with aspirin. So those would be the, you know, I think aspirin and niacinamide can be tried immediately, and the lysine, and then, you know, depending whether you have progesterone or not, you can try that as well. Magnesium is a, also good in, in terms of, um, you know, helping with nerve pain. It's an anesthetic by itself, but it also acts on the GABA system. Um, and then um, what else? Uh, Metal in Blue has had some recent studies in regards to nerve pain and nerve damage as well. More for, ner- more for nerve damage, but if there's chronic nerve pain, that usually means there is a, some kind of a pathological process going on. So methylene blue can be, can be tried too. But I would try start with niacinamide and aspirin, maybe add progesterone, and that should usually take care of it. Great stuff. Uh, thank you, Janet. Appreciate that. Uh, Anne Sweeney Jordan for three ninety nine. She says, uh, what causes head pressure and what can help? There are many different causes of head pressure. Um, one of the most common ones is during stress, the pituitary increases in size. And that can actually literally put pressure and usually manifests by pain at the base of the sockets of the eyes. Um, in terms of head pressure, um, I mean, other things that can cause it are actually, um, you know, inflammation in the sinuses or the eustachian tubes like in your ears. So it's it's sometimes like an ear, nose, throat problem, even though it manifests as a sensation in the head. So it really depends. I mean, I would if it's a uh, if it's like an allergic reaction, which is affecting the the respiratory system, like the, the like I said, the the ear, nose, throat. Um, I would try like a, just a you know antihistamine like Benadryl, see if that helps. Um, and if it's something like you know the the pituitary increasing in in, in as a result of chronic stress, then um, you know maybe I don't know progesterone would be like a good thing to try, especially because it's known to suppress the release of the pituitary hormones. Um, that have a positive feedback mechanism with themselves, prolactin being the most important one. Um, you know, if you can lower prolactin, that that typically ha- typically has a very strong quieting effect on the pituitary gland. Same with TSH, and progesterone is great for all of these. Chat is talking about my knees right now, so we'll just co- move on. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, where's uh, where's this other one? Oh, that was from Ann. Thank you so much, Ann. Appreciate it. Uh, Three ninety nine. Another one from Oren. Thank you, Oren, for $5. He says, how to get uh, rid of thrush or phlegm that is chronic, uh, dash mouth and sinuses. Um, so thrush, like on the, I mean, thrush is usually in the mouth. What about the sinuses? Um, um, how to get rid of thrush or phlegm that is chronic, dash mouth. And so maybe, uh, maybe constant, uh, like swollen sinuses or stuffed up nose. Yeah, that's a 
it's a classic sign of either intestinal irritation and or allergic reaction. Mm -hmm. um, and many people think they're getting allergies when in reality it's intestinal irritation. Um, basically, try to, I mean, any of the intestinal remedies that we've mentioned so far, usually actually just a little bit of aspirin helps uh, tremendously. Um, for some reason, the aspirin is preventing many of the um, irritating, um, actually it's not preventing, but um, there are older studies, and I think that's that's the mechanism behind it. The aspirin increases the tolerance of the gastrointestinal tract to tract to irritants. So if you're conditioned with aspirin, if you're taking aspirin on a semi-regular basis, uh, if you or if you haven't yet, you start doing it. Um, your GI tract tends to become very resistant to any to even strong irritants, such as uh, you know even undiluted alcohol. Now, not, I'm I'm not saying take aspirin and then test how strong your stomach is, but you know if you haven't tried it yet, that's that's one of the first things I would try. Um, and then, you know, if that doesn't work, you know, actually gelatin seems to have also a very good anti, uh, both anti-irritant effect in the GI tract and also anti-allergic effect as well. The both glycine and proline are known to decrease, uh, allergic reactions. And so in some cases they can protect even in, like in the case of anaphylactic shock. So dietary measures will be, you know, try the glycine as well. Um, and it can be tried with aspirin, even high dose aspirin because the glycine, protects from some of the irritating effects that aspirin may have on the GI tract itself uh, or the starch that's in the aspirin. You, you're unlikely to find 100% pure aspirin. It will, it will very, uh, at least will have uh, some cornstarch in it. And then if that doesn't help, then I'll try the antihistamines. Um, I've had a quite, quite a few people tell me that Benadryl cured their food allergies um, and basically their sinuses are now open and whatnot. And then you can also try the simple remedy that, that the thing we showed the YouTube video several times. You basically hold your nose, right? You hold your, you hold your breath. And after about 20, 30 seconds, you start tilting your head left and right 10 times each in, in each direction. Uh, and then you do a full circle clockwise and then counterclockwise. And then you release your nose and see if that, if that helps. It's usually pretty good at clearing up the sinuses and any kind of congestion that's there. Yeah, I uh, on my solo stream, I talked about aspirin desensitization therapy. And so people with chronic sinusitis, they use higher, uh, like increasingly bigger doses of aspirin. And ironically, like I, I never Ray, Ray always mentioned aspirin for sleep. And in the last year or two, that's become like so essential for me to get to sleep really quickly. But uh, for a long time, it didn't help at all. And so I don't know what's changed now uh, about my body. But now I really try to take at least 500 milligrams before I go to bed. And then the only other thing I would add is the sinusitis. That's really that's uh, pretty connected to like either a fungal infection sometimes or a bacterial infection. And so, like you talked about earlier, like maybe antibiotics or um, a flowers of sulfur, which is like antifungal, might have a big, uh, big effect if the if the nostrils are always clogged. I think. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Oren. You're still there, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh no, you dropped out. Um, no, okay. Uh, this one's. I just never moved. It looked like a statue. <laughs> I have like PTSD from our our uh, broken internet connection. Okay. Uh, this one is from Michelle uh, for $10. Thank you so much, Michelle. He says, do you know the origin of perceive, think, act? I could not find it on Dr. Pete's uh, or RPF website. Thank you for doing the show. Yeah, I'm almost positive that's from... Uh, from the Mind and Tissue book where he said that basically people keep telling you you have to have a plan for your life. <laughs> and it, 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 it matches perfectly well with what I just said about the earlier about a sexologist saying you have to plan your sex life. Mm -hmm. 
and he was talking in, ter in terms of general plan and about life. He said, it's pretty obvious that because the world is constantly changing, the only real plan that you can have is perceive, think, act. Oh, so there? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, sorry. No, I th it went silent again. Sorry. Um, I th he might have written it in mind and tissue, but he where I was going to go with that is he definitely said it in one of Karen's interviews uh, on uh, her older her website, Vision Acceptance. And so it was it, she was saying uh, with all like the kind of protocols on the Internet, aren't you afraid that you're going to be uh, taken as an authority? And he says something like, um, I always try to make the context clear because everybody's context is different. And then when somebody is it's, uh, saying my protocol for something, if somebody on the Internet is saying that Ray Pete has a protocol for something, you know that right. they're confusing him with an authority. And then he says the only uh, the only protocol is perceive, think, act. And so yep. that phrase, he might have said it again in Mind and Tissue. That's like one of my the books I'm the most sketchy on. But I'm, I'm positive that's from a Karen interview. Oh. Let's see. Oh, there is actually a website, perceivethinkact.com. Well, that, well, that's Brad and Jeremy's movie website. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, he said authoritarians talk about protocols, but the only valid protocol would be something like perceive, think, act. Yeah. And that, and yeah, Direct quote. Yeah. If you go to Vision Acceptance, I don't know if Karen still has those interviews on. Uh, she might have moved them to a, a different website called raypeatinsight.com. I don't know if that website is still up. Let me actually just check. Insight. Yeah, it's still up. If you just type in RayPeteInsight.com, you'll find it. Good stuff. Uh, okay. Uh, okay, that was from Michelle for $10. Thank you so much, Michelle. Dylan Morrison, uh, uh, chronic supporter. Thank you, Dylan, for $5. He says, George and Danny, uh, you guys are outstanding. Keep it up. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Dylan. Thank you for watching. Uh, Chris H., another long chronic supporter for $15 Australian. He says, you're a wizard, Danny. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Another one Dale, uh, from Dylan. $2. It's the knee. I bet you it's the knee. <laughs> that must be it. Um, Dylan says, oh, and nice hair, Danny. Thank you, Dylan. Uh, Sean M. for $5 says, hey, guys, best way to treat uh, vertigo and having a stroke? Oh, the vertigo is usually uh, heavily influenced by, by serotonin. Um, so, in fact, so, some, some drugs in Europe that are being sold they're actually serotonergic, but if you look at like at their pharmacological profile, um, they're they're antagonists on the 5-HT1D receptor, which I, I think, and I think that that's actually the receptor that's involved uh, most likely in the in the pathology of the vertigo. Um, the drug Dramamine, which they sell here in the United States for for vertigo, it also it also has has that effect. It's a it's a partially anti-serotonergic, um, and um, in my experience, uh, pregnenolone helps a lot with vertigo. I don't know why. Uh, I suspect, you know, indirectly it's it's uh, somehow acting against serotonin. Um, Pete seems to agree with it. He said in a few interviews basically that, uh, that pregnenolone's antidepressant effect was through opposition of cortisol and serotonin. But you're not going to find anything in terms of receptor activity of pregnenolone directly against serotonin. Or at least I, I couldn't. You know, if you could, that would be great. But... My personal experience and people that have asked me is that if you start getting like these, you know, vertigo episodes, usually it's it's basically serotonin either from a, you know, um, intestinal irritation 
um, or or from like extreme stress that can cause vertigo as well. But it's all it's all tied to ultimately to uh, serotonin acting through that five HD one D receptor. Okay, uh, <laughs> guys, give this episode a like. Uh, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment, and you'll be entered in the Tokovit uh, giveaway. And thank you to Georgia Dinkoff for providing those bottles of Tokovit. And you should be in the U.S. And if you're not in the U.S. and you do win and you want to pay for shipping, that would uh, be good. And we'll we'll cover shipping if it's anywhere in the U.S. And then DBO514 was the winner this week. Okay, so the schedule coming up will be me being a, a, doing a solo show next week and then repeat after that. And I think we're going to try to keep this schedule of like a Georgie episode, a solo episode, and then a repeat one and try to call it that for a week or a month rather. Because I think that um, covers a lot of bases and then take one week off after that. So with all that said, Georgie Dinkoff, parting words. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm in the middle of the of crazy town, so... Uh, but also, I mean, uh, I is a little bit uh, like I said before. I felt encouraged over the last several months because I think people are starting to question. You know, if, if so many things they've been lied about now are coming to light, what else could be uh, could be a lie as well? We're not there yet. I think by, by pe- for people questioning medical authorities, at least not like the the mass of the population, but they sense they already sense that something is inherently wrong. And I'm hoping that these protests will lead to that because I've already heard people on the street saying that, oh, my God, if they can lie to us about that, what else they can lie to us about? So it's individual people on the street, but I never heard anybody say that, let's say, five years ago. It was strictly you're either with us or you're against us. In other words, you either follow the rules or you're a wacko or, or whatnot. I'm still a wacko in most people's eyes, but now I'm like, this wacko makes sense every once in a while. Before I was, you know, never making sense. <laughs> I was the enemy of the people, and now more and more people around me are basically taking things seriously. And more important, not because they're coming from me, they're starting to dig into these studies that I sent them, and they're starting to ask their doctors questions. And doctors, little by little, are are, are giving up on that authoritarian attitude. Instead of saying my way or the highway, now they're saying we simply don't know. I've, you know, I was I was stunned. To see several doctor friends of mine react that way, they used to be, you know, you know, had this like bravado about them, this 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 behavior that, you know, if you didn't go to medical school, you couldn't even be, you you're not on the same level with them. They will not they will not discuss medical topics with you. And now with more and more things coming out and turning out to be nothing more than either wishful thinking or fraud, outright fraud. Um, now now I'm starting to see to hear more. We just simply don't know, and. I'm tying this to the protest. I think many of these people are now realizing themselves that, you know, many of these things around us are fake. It's not just the racism. It's not just the society that that's being built and it's being kept artificially at peace. Many other things are fake as well. So now the I think fear is first, and then uh, curiosity is next. Um, and I, we're still, but we're still at the fear stage. Well said. Uh, I just want to take a moment to sincerely appreciate uh, and thank the people watching, watching live, commenting live. Again, we're very fortunate to have an audience and this co- this show covers so many diverse topics. And so the people that uh, the people that hang in there with us, you know, that's really special. And so appreciate it. And there's no provocateurs or saboteurs in the, the chat. So it's really it's really just good stuff. And so thank you guys sincerely from the bottom of my heart. Again, me solo next week, then Ray Pete. 
Uh, Georgie, thank you so much. You make these shows worth doing. You take three hours out of your day to come join me on here uh, for really nothing in return, just to, to chat and, and talk. And so sincerely appreciate you and making these shows Thanks, worth man. doing. So uh, awesome. Appreciate it. Guys, have a wait. Uh, have a great weekend. Uh, see you next week. Uh, be safe and talk to you guys soon. Yeah. Use those protests for something good that goes beyond civil rights. I think we have a galvanizing force that can be used for a lot of good things. Straight from the source. <laughs> okay. Bye, everybody. <laughs>